Hello, my kitty cats. Welcome to Chit Chats with Git Cats number 17. I had to look over there to see that. With Jason Space Smith. I'm really looking forward to this. I haven't ch chucked over to him yet. He's waiting in the wings. Um, music publishing, sync licensing, all that kind of stuff. If you're a songwriter, you really need to know about that stuff because that's a great way to be earning an income have your music heard, be able to walk down the bloody street and not know, have people come up to you and hassle you and say, hey, you're that guy on the pop charts that's making no money. Music sync licensing is where it's at. So I have a really cool friend, Jason Space Smith, and he's right beside me. Please welcome Space. Yo, what's up, dude? How are you? <laughs> I'm so good, good mate. We got the, uh, the dueling mohawks going on. Yes, we do. It's kind of cool. Like we're, we're, we're connected from so far away. I love it. It is. Yeah, yeah. Dude, can you explain to me what is music sync licensing? What's that all about? Wow. It's a great question. Uh, it's also a great way to turn your intellectual property, that being your recording master and your the, the IP as far as the publishing is uh, is concerned within your song and uh, getting that in the hands of the right people so that then they can place the, those materials in TV shows, movies, uh, short little TV spots, an iPod commercial, even if we're using iPods anymore, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. It's I like to call it, and I've been calling it this for quite some time now, since 2010, when it sort of started to really, well, especially when I started to reap the, the rewards of which, but um, I've been calling it the, the new sort of radio, because uh, it kind of really is. So that's in a nutshell cool. kind of what it is, yeah. <laughs> now, so just to let people know you, that you actually know a thing or two about it, what's some of the uh, films or TV stuff that you've had music appear in? So predominantly, like a lot of television stuff, like um, Vampire Diaries, How to Get Away with Murder. I was on a, I had a song in the Ellen DeGeneres show uh, a couple of weeks back before all this craziness started. Um, uh, pro television promos. I have a new promo. It's coming out for a TV show called uh, Station 19. I think it's called. It's like a Grey's Anatomy spinoff. I have a promo for that. Teen Wolf. Uh, like all the, all, it seemed to be all of the shows that the kids loved, yeah. Um, which is fantastic because that's the demographic, you know, from a from a business oriented standpoint perspective, that's kind of the demographic that you want to go after, you know. Cool, cool. So for somebody who's writing songs at home, like there's no point in writing great songs and being in your bedroom and going, "Wow, this is great!" If only people would hear it, and if only I could make some money out of doing this and, and refine my art by being making enough money to be able to stay at home, enhance my craft and get really good at it, which is a really hard thing in, if you've got a record deal these days because generally they, you get one shot, one song and then psh, how does somebody get into it? What's the next step? I've written this great song. I want to get it out on TV and movies. How do I go about that? So, okay, so let, let's dissect what, what your question is there, right? Cool. So I think there's this massive misnomer, and I went through this just from my, my experience having from, you know, moved from, from Australia, 
you know, I, I was a guitar player in a, in a rock band back there trying to get a record deal. It just wasn't going to happen in Australia, at least not for us. Uh, and then migrating from there to here, you know, massive move, you know, suitcase and a guitar in one hand, and let's see how this goes. So to cut a long story short, you know, the, it was three Australians and one American in that band. It was a band called Memento, which was kind of like a continuation of the band Tower. There's a whole point to all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, the three of us, the three Australians, were kind of really anchored to this uh, complete misnomer that you get one shot. You get one shot, and that that's it. And that that is, I think that is the most imperative and most dangerous part of a musician's life and their lifestyle or how they view themselves and how they view their future, right? Because if you set yourself up to that one thing, if you don't achieve that, you failed. Mm. And then people give up. Yeah. And 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 they give up for the wrong reasons. Like I've always said the, the long play is always the better play. Uh-huh. You know, you get mo- you get more out of it. Um and I can say that as a 45-year-old man now, looking back in the last 20 years of my career, uh, like I wish I hadn't known that more way back when instead of trying to, you know, you know, there's nothing wrong uh, uh, with like reaching for the stars and trying to attain these crazy goals because, you know, if you're lucky enough, you might just, you know, get them and achieve them. Yeah. But I think immediately, I think people – Young musicians need to change the way I feel, need to change the way that they look at a career or or the space in general. Because now I feel like it's so ubiquitous. It's like it spans from YouTube, from creation to, you know, you talked about how does one get heard, right? Yep. If you're writing songs at home and uh, you, you want the, those songs and those materials to, to be in the hands of people where they can place them into commercials and you know, make some money out of it. Yep. Uh, I think what would be interesting nowadays, and I, and I think you see a lot of this on YouTube, especially, or even Twitch or any sort of streaming format, you know, showcase your, your story. Like, I want to see your path. Like, show me how you created this beat. You know, don't, I think another sort of misnomer is that, I think artists in general try to do this with their wares. Yeah, like they want totally. to hold it so yep. dear and close to them. Yep. And again, attached to that is this sort of misnomer again of like selling out. What's wrong with making a living at creating art? Absolutely. It's, it's, trust me, it's amazing. It, yep. it, it gives you the freedom to, to continue to do so. I think you hit the nail on the head there about that, that holding, holding your wares close in there. I, Back when we were, we were in the band scene back in the 90s on the Gold Coast here, there was a lot of that amongst people and I grew out of that and realized that, no, don't view people as competition. Work yeah. together. Work together, yeah. you know? And um, I'm fairly new to the whole YouTube thing and I, I kind of clicked onto it a few years ago that, man, there's no guitar heroes. I'm playing these small gigs. No one gives a fuck. They're not there to no see the band. Cares. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually made the conscious decision that I'm not going to play shows unless they're for a ticketed show anymore. Like people pay money to come and see you. I do help out the odd friends and if they've got a cover band and it's like, yeah, I know that, man. I'll just come along and play. But that was a big turning point. And, but I did see that, no, it's all, it's all online now. And yeah. 
what I'm getting at is rather than viewing all these other YouTubers as competition, um, I had some pretty top dudes reach out to me really early and just going, dude, come with us. You're one of us. And I'm like, I've got no subscribers. It'll come. It'll come. And, it, and it's still coming along. But everybody works together, not against each other. And that's a, a kind yeah. of mentality, isn't it, that um, that you got to take on and, and stop viewing everybody as competition. It's this weird, like it's a sense of ego, right? It's narcissism totally. at its core. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with having ego. There's nothing wrong with being confident. And, but know your place. You know, be humble as well. Yep. But, you know, you as one self-soul entity can only do so much. And, you know, if, if you're on fire, what's the first thing you're going to, to call for? Help. So we need to help each other and, and, you know, yeah, it's, that's what it's all. Yeah. The Gold Coast scene, it, it started to really, it started to really affect me yeah. uh, back when this is in the nineties. And yeah, like even, you know, some of the most fun times that I ever had was actually being on stage with you in, in your project, Skateboard. There was a time where I was playing in maybe four or five different bands. I remember playing, the Rosen Crown, which was an old venue back in Surface Paradise. It was the, like the place, right? It was the, yep. the place yep. other than the playroom. But there was, I think, Monday through Sunday, I played there every single night. Cool. Uh, it, it's, you know, there, but there was this sense of community there back then. But I think it was few and far between. Like There were people like yourself, myself, a couple of other, like Nathan from, from Julian Day, God rest his soul he was another one of those guys that just just wanted to play you know mm. like yeah 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 those days man. i i really miss those days <laughs> yeah absolutely so space let's just say for instance i've written a song um and i'm thinking to myself like it, i'm not bending over to what's expected of me to get radio play uh, i'm not interested in that but this is great this would really fit a movie what's the next step for me how do i take it to that level Right. Yeah. So what I found over the, the course of the last few years, uh, sort of in the in the advent of film and TV licensing, music mm -hmm. licensing, kind of exploding. Um, there is a point. So I, I have the pro this project called Digital Daggers, which we we became so ubiquitous within the, the, the licensing space to the point where we used to have these things in the industry, like between music publishers and when you're a songwriter, you're working with different songwriters throughout, like I'd be working with people from Universal Publishing or, you know, other people who are on EMI or, you know, what, what have you. You're all kind of like interdispersed. Um, and they used to send out these sort of who's looking lists and these sort of call sheets of what the publishers and music licenses are looking for. And I would see like Digital Dagger's names uh, throughout, you know, these call sheets. And I'm like, at that moment, I, I immediately thought, oh, shit, the party's over. The party's over because now everyone's figured out that this style or genre of music works within this sort of, um, you know, a plethora of TV shows and movies and whatnot. So I'm going to circle back around to um, your point or your question. Uh, there's there's been this influx of music, uh, uh, film and TV licensing so much so that there's so much of it now, uh, because, you know, everyone's become sort of wise to this sort of new space. And it's like, we're 20, 
almost 20 years deep into the space of music licensing, like wow. in the new sense. Yeah. It's, and it's, and it had been around, you know, pre prior to that, it was just utilized in a different way. It was kind of like the secret. So it started to come to the surface and people started to recognize that this was an occurrence, especially in the advent of, you know, people weren't buying records anymore. Everything's become digitized. You know, you're buying, purchasing stuff from iTunes online. Yeah. It becomes an immediate purchase. So then, I, you know, you see this connection between audience and creation. So that, that gap became completely bridged. And if you were smart enough to recognize, you've just eradicated the middleman, the record company. Yep. Record companies, at, at, you know, at, in 2020, record companies are, uh, what's the word? They're um, obsolete. Yep, They're absolutely totally. obsolete. Totally. And they have been for quite a while, but I think we're, we've now hit the tipping point. So from a music supervisor, music supervisor's perspective, and these are the people, whenever, whenever I say music supervisor, uh, this is a person whose job is to listen to music constantly, search online. Like a lot of these guys and gals are searching online and they still have their connect to the people at the music publishers who are basically just selling. Uh, this is a lot of information. So That's I'm trying cool, to like. Man. That's cool. I, I'm, here, so, I'm here to learn and I'm listening. I'm taking cool. notes. And this will be here forever, which is great. Yeah. So give me, if anything sort of goes over your head, uh, please like tell me to stop so I can reel it in. We could always, we could always do a follow-up one if people do have questions after the fact and they're in the comments. We could always oh. do a, a follow-up. So please, please do. If you're watching this after the fact and you went, hey, you didn't touch on this, let us know in the comments and, and we'll come back and answer them. That'd be great. I also, I want to offer my, like, uh, you know, at the end of this, uh, I, I want to give out an email address for people to contact me if they need any help or anything like that. Like, from production standpoint, songwriting standpoint, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's a long-winded way of saying, uh, of trying to answer the question of how to get your music yep. into the hands of people to actually place that. It's kind of a lot of, a lot of it's all up in the air because the whole set of industry is slightly being displaced, especially given the circumstances globally now, right? Um, people are in their offices. You're not having those conversations and those drinks after work. Uh, from so, I have a point person at uh, Sony ATV, which is one of my publishers, and uh, the the whole aspect of going out for drinks, maybe on a Thursday or Friday night with other music supervisors, they develop these relationships. We develop relationships with our people at Sony or whatever publisher, um, so much so that th there's compassion between the your point person at your publisher and you as an artist. There's a relationship there, and that it just kind of ripples out the de the development of relationships between music supervisors and point people at publishers are almost the key to getting your wares placed. Um, there's that sort of element. But then ultimately, the question comes down to the music supervisor that's going to place your song. Maybe it's 30 seconds of your song that goes into this one pivotal scene in this episode that is trying to convey some sort of uh, emotion, right? Underneath dialogue or even a part of the dialogue. The question is, is this artist an artist? 
Meaning, is this just some guy in a home studio and that's his song and that's it? Is he an artist or is, she, is he or she an artist? Is, is there content uh, to back up the fact that you have a presence? So that, uh, I think at the end of the day, as important as the, the craft of the songwriting, the craft of the production, the craft of the, the, uh, the relationships, um, there's also the, the craft of branding oneself. Because from a music uh, supervisor's standpoint, they're going to see multiple options, right? And it's ultimately whatever is going to serve the scene or the commercial or the movie, you know, in, in the best way. But the ultimate question is, is this an entity? Is this something that could benefit from this trajectory? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. You're touching on a few things there that I've been taking notes when I cut away and it's just you, you're seeing me jotting shit down. We'll come back to that, yeah. But what you touched on there was building relationships. Yeah. And that's a very big thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, – Last year, I, um, I went to a YouTuber event, 42 Gear Street. It was all the, the, the big guitar YouTubers. And I was a little bit out of place because these guys all had, you know, 100,000 subscribers. And I went there with 500. Um, and I, I did get a vibe from, from a couple of the, the bigger guys like, what the hell is this guy doing here? He's trying to muscle in on our popularity. And I was like, no, I'm not going to try and come in on, on your videos. I'm, I'm here to see how all this goes down. And I'm here to build relationships. And that's why now that we've locked down laws and stuff that I'm able to jump on, on Messenger or whatever and just say, and it's usually a really short, sharp message. Hey, man, hope you're well. So-and-so's just invited himself on my show and suggested you might want to come on too. You got time? Yep. And it's funny. Yep. The big guys, that's all it takes. They're just like, sure, what time? I've done the same thing to a, to a couple of local people. And just got attitude back from them. Yeah. It's, you know. They're not building the relationships. They're not building the relationships, you know, with the right people. One of the, and I I hate, I hate to say what I'm about to say, but one of the reasons why I I was kind of, I had fervor with leaving Australia, especially within the, for the, for uh, delving into the entertainment industry. Uh, There's this um, tall poppy syndrome in Australia. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's it's very uh, it's venomous, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with being proud of who you are and what you do. Nice. <laughs> I was holding that up on my little side there. That's my coffee cup. <laughs> no bad days. Hell yeah! But there's you know um, I feel like uh, people's um, uh, confidence gets blown and and buried. Uh, especially in, in places like Australia where there's this, oh, you think you're better than me. Mm. That mm. kind of ethos or that ideology, yeah. um, it gets so misconstrued and, and then gets turned into things like that where people think they're holier than thou and like, oh, far be it from me to be a part of your, like, what? It's, that's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm sorry you have to deal with that stuff, but it, it's it's funny, mate. Uh, that you say that about the, the tall poppy thing. Um, the first person that noticed me, I actually thought I'd get into doing the YouTube thing, and I'd have a couple of years of doing it before anybody would notice, and I'd get confident with it. It was my third video that 
Jason McNamara, who is a, a guitar YouTuber from Australia, but he's based in, in Tokyo. Jason from Tokyo, I think he's called online these days. He's the only guitar YouTuber that's been to Eddie Van Halen's place to interview Ed. Uh, Jason saw my video, shared it with all the bigwigs, and then called me through through Facebook. And I'm like, ah, uh, hi. <laughs> and that was his thing. He was going, dude, you're on track. Um, I'm Being an Aussie, I'm going to give you a bit of advice. Tall poppy syndrome, watch out for it. And yep. one thing he told me was, you're going to know that you've done really good work when you show your friends, and this is, this is just relating to, to Aussies as he saw it, and I've noticed the same thing, if they don't say anything, if they don't say, hey, man, that's really good, blah, 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 if they just go, yes, you know you've done really good. It's just an Australian thing. They don't want to give you kudos, um, yeah. which is strange. It's really strange. I don't know why it's that is. So, and see, the after effects of that are – they're almost infinite, right? Because then you're left to be somewhat, you're, you're divided within your mind, within your consciousness. Like, well, am I horrible at this? Like, it, it becomes very difficult. I, I suffered from this. Like, I, I got very depressive in Australia trying to figure out, like, why aren't I getting any edgeway or even getting accepted within my peers? God, man, like, when I... We got our record deal over here, and I went back to Australia for the first time to do immigration stuff. And I got to see a couple of friends, and sadly, the, the one guy that I actually <clears throat> wanted some, some kudos from said, oh, well, you sold out, didn't you? And you left us all behind. I'm like, oh, fuck you, dude. Thanks, mm. thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, if, if you're watching, you know who you are, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, mate, I'm... Um, Back to the, the whole getting your music out there and everything. Yeah. Who who should I be trying to form relationships with? Like, what what kind of companies? Like, if you, if you don't know, it's like, okay, who? What? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first port of call um, would be music publishers. I think you know, uh, write down a list of from from the the A list all the way down to the the you know the almost unheard of um uh, so I, i'm not so familiar with the australian sort of uh geographical sort of uh elements of publishing out there like the only people that i know are the people from sony atv or emi or blah 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 blah, blah. um it, within the independent sort of structure i think you know google is your friends you know search for music supervision licensing search for uh, music publishers, uh, and you know, cold call them, not like get, jump them on, get on the phone, but you know, send out emails, um, you know, tag them in, in it, it's one thing to say this, but it's also, you know, don't go so guerrilla style that you become a nuisance to people. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I think at the, you know, what's more important to say is actually this, um, <laughs> and this is part uh, of a much broader ideology, but at the end of the day, if what you're creating and what you're conjuring uh, and coming up with is good and it hits a nerve, it's going to get discovered. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's almost, you know, throwing caution to the wind, like putting yourself out there, not only by virtue of like, you know, reaching out to companies, but put it out into the world, you know, just 
people, the audience, don't lie. And they smell bullshit a mile away. Yeah. And if they don't like it, they'll let you know. And listen to those people. I think the best platform right now is the ether, YouTube, SoundCloud, you know, um, because trust me, I, I know music supervisors scour SoundCloud and YouTube on a daily basis. Really? Because, yeah, they're trying to find – so there, there's there's almost this bottleneck, right, where you've got – and this is what's happened to the major label industry, signing the same shit over and over and over and over again yeah. yep. because, it, because it works, right, yep. it's, until it doesn't. And the music publisher is kind of that fulcrum in between – where they're the, the, the sort of gatekeeper of trying to find what's cool. The record company's trying to find what's cool, but the publisher has more of the, the, the finger on the, on, on the pulse, right? Yeah. Um, so publishers are in and of themselves trying to find the latest and greatest thing. And more, than, more often than not, you're going to find it on SoundCloud and it's on YouTube. You're going to see these numbers sort of amass, you know? I think gone are the so <laughs> it's kind of a two-folded answer because gone are the days where like the traditional publishing deal doesn't really exist anymore and the traditional record deal doesn't really exist anymore and nor should it because we're more empowered now we we as artists have complete control I think um you know putting yourself out there to be discovered is one thing, and I think you can you can get a lot more from that rather than trying to knock down doors, trying to get discovered, and, and they they display two totally different uh, sets of communication, right? This sort of you know desperation comes off in a in a in a desperate way, yeah. You know, fervor and and um, um, confidence comes off in a much different way, and. There's, you know, you want to hang out with people who are the cool people, right? The, the ones who actually give give light to you. Yeah, yeah. And the ones that are trying to take the whole time, those are the ones you want to stay away from. So I guess it's this balance in between, you know, yeah, I think from an ethical standpoint, you have to kind of be your own judge of whether, you know, did I, was 50 emails to, you know, the same publisher this week, was that too much? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or could I have spent 50 hours on this one track that I just wanted to be the best that I could possibly make it and then put it out into the world, which, which is going to have the most efficacy? Uh-huh. So, mate, when it comes to writing songs, um, well, no, I, I'm just going to backtrack on that question. Um, with music syncs for, uh, for picture, is that – does that generally mean songs that you've already written? That doesn't mean actually the, the the film directors give you music and then you write something to it. Is that a different thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very. So, uh, this. So, hopefully, you're starting to see how kind of very broad this space is, mm, right? Mm. It's very, very broad. Yeah, and it, uh, it's it's very. It's it's like with anything, ninety nine percent luck. You know, the rest of it is like right. Right place, right time, you know? Yep. Um, so for the way that I kind of fell into music licensing, like, uh, and, and there's different kinds. So uh, how do I explain this? So Memento, my band, uh, like Tower 2.0, whatever yep. it was, yep. signed to uh, Columbia Records and EMI Music Publishing. 
we go make a record and there's tours set up and that's the live performance and merchandising and all that kind of stuff. That's one avenue. The other avenue, the silent one is the music licensing one where um, we were, I, I think we had one of our songs that was going to be in a movie. Uh, and you know, as young as we were back then, we were like, wait, what? Oh, that's cool. Uh, oh, and we get paid for that. And at that time, all of that kind of went over my head, like as far as the logistics of the finances are concerned, because I want to get into that aspect too. Um, so, um, as a band signed to a label and we're out on tour and we have a record out, we're also getting music licensing on songs. And, uh, some of these songs weren't even singles. These were just deep cuts from the record. So there, there's that aspect, right? Where a music supervisor loves this record, loves a particular song, it resonated with them, they're working on a movie, and they want to place that in there because they just love the song. There's that aspect. Yep. Again, luck, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Then, um, so for digital cut to Digital Daggers, after Memento had split, um, Andrea and I, my partner in Digital Daggers, she and I were, we were writing songs for uh, the next Katy Perry record and the next uh, Kelly Clarkson record. So we're in a studio and we're writing songs like literally we used to call them shots in the dark because, you know, Kelly wasn't coming down uh, and Katie wasn't coming down. We're not in the room with Katie. We're writing songs for Katie. As you know, you know, a large proportion of the music industry, there are what we kind of used to call ghost writers, but they're not ghost writers at all. You look at the liner notes and they're right there. there. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. So, um, so from a perspective of we're we're trying to write songs for radio for Katy Perry and Kelly Clarkson out of frustration because Katy Perry took a left turn and she went in a totally different direction and we then we had a whole bunch of these songs that are just now useless right, yeah, right. We were so frustrated so we decided to start to write music for ourselves okay out of coming out of this sort of arduous uh, sort of like you know consider a sweatshop somewhere in in, uh, in Vietnam or something and we're churning out songs yeah. right yep. you want to you want to come up for some air and you want to make music creating music fun again so what happened was that we created this sort of style or genre of music that just right time right place it, it just kind of filled a void of the you know uh, especially TV like teen TV shows like Vampire Diaries and all those kinds of things, pretty little liars um, so it just kind of like, we didn't create those songs for those shows. Those songs just so happened to work for those shows. Yeah. Now that that's scenario number two from scenario two brought me to scenario three, where the music, the very music supervisors that were supervising those TV shows would text me and call me up. And my person at, at Sony would call me up and say, Hey, space, we're working on this scene for this episode of whatever show is we need a piece of music that uh, that would fill this in. We need a song. We want a new dag a digital dagger song. Um, There's one song just recently that went into, uh, I think it was in one of the, the last few episodes of Orange is the New Black. It was a very pivotal scene. It was a suicide scene or something. It was a song that we wrote bespoke for, I think it was uh, a TV show called The Originals, which was an offshoot of the Vampire Diaries. Oh, yeah. Um, and 
uh, it landed in that scene and uh, that song never got released because it didn't fit our cycle for a record, blah, 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 blah. Uh, cut to, you know, three, four years later, that same very song gets placed into uh, a massive TV show um, in a massive scene. And then suddenly you reap the rewards of the, uh, the sort of marketing benefits of that because you're an artist if I was just some guy who was making music for film and TV, you're kind of missing out on, a, on a, an entire other uh, portion of revenue stream. And it goes back to that question of the music supervisor asking, is this a, an entity or is this just some person creating music? Um, so I want to delve into that a little more because there's two, there's like the blanket music licensing aspect. And then there's this other aspect that's more bespoke for artists and artist driven projects. So, you know, like you have a song on a TV show, you better have it all set up so that by the time that that TV show airs, it's available on iTunes, on Spotify, there's a lyric video made this, you know, you've got to have all your ducks in a row. Yep. And then you get, suddenly you're making money and, and, you know, you're self-sufficient. You're, you've just created another year or five years to, to create more content. Yeah. There's a lot of work behind the scenes, isn't it? You, you mentioned uh, lyric videos. And when I messaged you the other day about something, uh, it was some odd hour and you're like, oh man, I've just pulled an all nighter. I've just been doing a, <laughs> a lyric video and stuff. And people don't realize the behind the scenes thing that goes on. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, these aren't necessities. It's really up to the, you know, uh, the, the individual, you know, uh, and it's also your skill set as well. You know, uh, putting something up uh, like a lyric video that's very, very basic and, and is not sort of married to the art of the music to me seems like a waste of time. Uh, you know, like go take a camera outside and film some nature. At least that's a little bit more interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of want to, you want to present a package as opposed to like, oh, here's this thing that I did. Yeah. Mate, you, you mentioned yeah. like writing for Kelly Clarkson and Kerry, uh, Kerry Patey, <laughs> Perry Katie, Katie Perry, <laughs> Kitty Perry. Either or. Either or. <laughs> we just, we just call it Bill. Um, what other artists is there any, some other artists that we would have heard your work on um i know you, when i was at your place there's a couple of yeah records hanging up on the wall and everything um yeah. yeah is there some notable ones that you could sort of bring that we go oh really you had a hand in that one yeah um most of the ones that like you know there's a bunch of little ones i was doing a lot of artist development where you know uh, and I'd, i would always get the cut too i was like I was the rock guy where um, my publisher would call me up and say, uh, hey, we've got an artist coming in next week. Uh, do you have time for a session? It's more of not do you have time. It's like you're doing a session and you're writing songs. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I'd be writing songs with artists that were had just recently been signed to wind up records from the, you know, the Evanescence camps and all that kind of stuff. Um, Seether is probably one of the, sort of most notable ones um i co-wrote one of their uh number one hits and Which one was that, another mate? track uh a song called fake it okay cool and uh another song which uh another song which was actually an old song from uh the tower days that yeah. uh never got uh ultimately recorded uh it's a song called waste i think i believe it's the closing song on that cedar record okay uh song called waste yeah, um right. 
uh, Candlebox, uh, another great band. It's just a bunch. Of, yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. Do you it's, get to a point where you forget? Like, cause um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I quite often mention uh, the studio legend uh, Louis Shelton lives around the corner from me. And he quite often pops around. I give him a hand with video staff or whatever, and um, I quite often say to him, like, "Hey, did you play on such and such?" And he goes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wikipedia says I did <laughs> because to, to them, like the, the way it was a job and he'd go in and they just play a track before the artist got in. He didn't know who he was playing for. He just, yeah, yeah, play on that. And uh, yeah. yeah. So well, did, did you always know which artist you were writing for at the time? Did they give you a bit of a background? We want this kind of vibe or was it just oh, like, man, yeah. we just want your style on this. What, how does that work? A bit of both. Um, it, you know, in, within the rock world, people like so. Th there was a point in my in my life where post Memento, after my had my band had split up, I was like the go to guitar player in in LA. Um, I had a, a buddy uh, come and stay with me uh, for a few weeks, or I think a couple of months, uh, years back, and uh, you know, we got back from the the um, the airport for me picking him up, and on my answering machine is a, a voicemail of um, uh, Barry Squire, who's a, a an individual here in Los Angeles who places musicians in in bands, and I had a I think I had a, a message from it was either Corn or it was uh, uh, I think yeah I think it was the Corn thing where uh, it's Barry like hey Space uh, just wondering uh, we we want you to come down to the studio Corn uh, wants you to come down and and be the second guitar player we just want to try you guys out you know blah 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 uh, like things like that were were occurring. Um, so I became sort of like the, the, the guitar guy, the rock guy. Yep. So when uh, art, rock artists, <laughs> still, this is in the 2000s, yep. uh, and there were still rock bands, uh, they would come into town. I was always one of the guys that um, would be on the, the top of the list to work with. Because uh, it's, I, you know, it's like writing rock music. It's, it's, <laughs> once you've been doing it for such a long amount of time, it becomes almost second nature. And I'm such a huge fan of pop sort of uh, the sort of pop sensibility within uh, rock songs. It's just, you know, I just love huge, big choruses. So I'd always get the song on the record, you know. Um, but then uh, sometimes the songs that you would write for an artist uh, wouldn't get cut on the record. And then that song would then get thrown around and it would land somewhere. Uh, an artist would love it. Like uh, Kelly Clarkson wanted to record one of our uh, Digital Daggers songs. Um, but again, from a business standpoint, I, I couldn't get anyone to agree uh, with me to tell me like, well, is it going to be a single? Because if it's not going to be a single, then you're not getting the song. But, you know, there's there's a negotiation aspect on the on the back end of things. Oh, you know, um, it also helps not being green too, because at that juncture, I'd already come from the major label sort of arena that I knew that, well, here's an opportunity, you know, 10 years prior to that, I probably would have said, oh yeah, no, Kelly, I, Kelly Clarkson's going to record one of my songs. But then I would get kind of screwed on the back end as far as the negotiation sort of aspect of things. So there's a lot of like, if you're writing for an artist today, like say, uh, say for Twenty One Pilots, for example, uh, if they were uh, doing a co-write, um, there's all of these contingencies within the paperwork of like, is this 
uh, is there a guarantee it's going to be a single? Uh, is there a guarantee it's going to be you know pushed in cert a certain way? How much money into marketing is going to go into the song? It's a, it's it's nuts. It's it's really quite crazy how intricate the business aspect of things yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. So I'm starting to learn that about the guitar product demo game as well. Uh, when I do these live chats with people, people Skype me. You know, I get them to come in. At, up to half an hour or so beforehand. Some people, I just shoot them a message, say, oh, I'm here, man, anytime you want to connect. Uh, and so I'm always talking to them before the interview. A lot of the time, we, we rave for a good hour afterwards. Um, and, um, yeah, just seeing the business side and the deals and, yeah, like like you're saying, there's, there's certain big guys that have certain terms and stuff. And, well, okay, everyone's not allowed to release a video until this date, but hey, I'm numero uno, I get to release one two weeks beforehand, everybody else and all this kind of shit. There's a lot of stuff. Legally, do you do you recommend that people sort of get good representation to suss this out? Because there's so many horror stories of people who have signed over their publishing or, or signed the first thing that came their way and they're fucked. John Fogarty is the classic example of that for me. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, yeah. one of the... I went and saw John play um, a few years ago when he was out here and um, I saw his show firstly at the entertainment center on his own. That is, he had the best guitar sound I've ever heard in that he place. It was, it was amazing. I didn't realize how good he was. And I saw him a few days later at the blues fest, but as he was uh, up there playing a few songs into it, he kind of said, Hey, so you probably heard that I've been, pissed off with people owning my songs and i couldn't play my own songs i'm here to tell you i'm finally over that let's play some let's play some of my music so he got screwed royally he got oh. he got sued for writing for releasing a song that sounded too much like himself yeah 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 seriously oh. that song old man down the road he got sued for it sounding too much like an old credence song green river who someone fucked him over and owned, owned the publishing on so in terms of legal representation, it's a big thing, isn't it? It's a massive thing. It's, well, it's imperative, but it's not, right? Uh, the same sort of thing applies to management. Um, I, I've been without a personal manager for quite some time. This is going to sound very douchey, right? Yep, yep. Or, uh, and forgive me, you know, uh, what, it's hard to say, like, you know, once you've lived here for 20 almost 20 years and been in the midst of it, it's hard to kind of have, I still have my, the, the perspective of, of, of the layman, uh, of the young up and coming. Cause I was once that person. So I, yep. I understand and I sympathize it's, I'm so in the thick of it over here, you know? Uh, so if I sound too bougie or what have you, my apologies. I'm um, used to your douchiness, mate. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, Having management, right? The, the biggest question, because management and and uh, having uh, representation and an attorney uh, are almost the, the same kind of thing in a weird way. I know that sounds very sort of compartmentalized, but it's not. Uh, a lot of managers, uh, sorry, a lot of attorneys are the ones who procure deals and make deals happen, not just the signing off and making sure that the verbiage is correct and, and written in such a way, but the procurement of these of said deals is very uh a lot of it has to do with the attorneys because they're a community in and of, in and of themselves you know yeah um it's it's very i think it goes back to 
well, one of the massive points that I really want to ramp home is self-sufficiency. Yep. I think at the end of the day, if you don't have to rely on an attorney or put one on as, uh, you know, on, on a retainer, because a lot of, uh, you know, music attorneys uh, require a retainer, um, most of which just take a percentage of which, and that could be anywhere from 5 to 10%. 10% is asking way too much. Yeah, uh, yeah totally, totally. Norm is five. Um, so uh, if you have a great relationship with your music attorney and you've been entered into that circle, because it's very much this sort of circle of trust, you know, you get introduced to certain people and by virtue of that introduction, you've now been entered into this little circle, right? It's very, there's a lot of gatekeepers in this industry. Uh, but I feel like that th those walls are starting to break down because of in the advent of the internet, right? Yeah, yeah. It, as long as it's been around, it's been around for quite some time now. It's I think artists, young up and coming artists, are starting to recognize how empowered they are by virtue of the tools that they have. But again, going back to the self sufficiency, if you understand how music publishing works, how licensing works. Um, how record deals work, what is a standard record deal, what's a standard publishing deal, um, how much should you be earning on royalty rates and all that kind of stuff as far as streaming is concerned. All those things apply. And yes, it helps to have someone there to guide you, but most attorneys are not there to guide you. They're there to extrapolate 5% of your revenue stream. Yeah, yeah. Same management. You know, if, if a manager has your best interest, then they will guide you throughout and they will empower you with the knowledge that you need to know as an artist. I know a lot of managers that like to draw that proverbial line in the sand and keep their artists completely out of the loop whilst coddling uh, the information uh, yeah. yep. an artist. Artists should be educated. They should, every single person that plays a guitar, writes a song, dabbles on a keyboard, is a producer, a, a mixer, what have you, know it all. Yeah. At so, least little bits of it. Yeah. So that's uh, one thing with uh, you. It, it's really funny, mate. Like when we played together, both in rival bands and in the same band for a little bit, um, and then you, know, you went to the States and stuff. When we reconnected later, um, we both kind of went down very similar paths in learning how to produce records ourselves, um, things like that. So it is a very multifaceted game, isn't it? Like you're expected yeah. to be able to, to mix your own stuff these days because let's face yeah. it, and this is one thing that fucking shits me, <laughs> top tier mix engineers, if you are a signed artist, charge $10,000 a fucking song. Yeah. I reached out to somebody um, of a big name when I did my album, and as an unsigned artist, they said, yeah, 3K a song. And when people come and ask me to do a record, it's like, okay, cool, we're going to mix this now. We're like, what, you, you want me to pay you to mix? mix? It's like, okay, so you're going to go and compare my work to people who charge 10K, and I'm talking Australian dollars, um, 10K work, and you don't want to pay me at all. For mixing it's it's a part of the process and it's a specialized thing and um good day to you sir <laughs> yeah. yeah well so, you know the how did you learn how did you learn how, how like 
I, I know I went down a, a path. Nine Inch Nails, man, for me, I saw Nine Inch Nails live in 95. And it was at a big festival. They were the, they were the headliners. And they had people like Tool and... Oh, it was it was a huge lineup, Alternative Nation. Oh, when Nine Inch Nails there. came out, man, that fucking sound, I just went, why yeah. did everybody else just sound like a bad outdoor gig? And these guys came on and it sounded like a fucking huge home stereo system. Um and I kind that that took me down the rabbit hole of production, sampling, synthesis. I was always into synth- synthesizers. I started out playing keyboards. Um how did you get into it, man? What how did you get all the chops uh, in in the studio? Yeah, yeah. Um, great question. Yeah, I was at that I'm show. Gonna get, that I, a- mate, I'm, I'm going to walk off and, and make myself a coffee while you while you're answering that because the kitchen's just there and I can still hear Do you. It. So, in, in case awesome. you think I'm being rude, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm still listening. Uh, yeah, no, that was that was a fantastic show. Um, uh, okay, so. That's that's such yeah okay let me let me sort of take all of these thoughts I, I I think it's really it's out of necessity ultimately so having gone through the process of um, getting the record deal like so uh, Memento uh, myself and three other gentlemen uh, here were constantly doing these showcases. To, to get a record deal. Thankfully, you know, we had a lot of interest from all of them. Uh, and there was a point in time where we were going back and forth from, from LA to New York, LA to New York, and we're, you know, doing all these showcases in these massive, there's a, a facility called SIR here in, in, in the States, and they have this massive uh, facility in New York. Actually, I met Sting there uh, at the drink machine one day when we were doing a showcase. <laughs> cool. Um, bass guitar, massive big black uh, sort of trench coat, very nice, young, like young looking, like guy looks fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, That's what so, five hours of tantric sex will do to you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sting knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone should know. Um, <laughs> so uh, by virtue of going back and forth and doing all of these and uh, these showcases and meeting with all these different label executives, right? Um, we got to meet uh, like Gary Gersh, who signs uh, Nirvana, came down and, and we did a showcase for him. Cool. Um, at, at that point, you know, it becomes sort of very uh, secondary. Uh, it's very innate. You know, you do your showcase, you play your show, and then the most important part of that meeting is the sit down and discussion after your. You're, uh, you're, uh, you've performed. And so you're meeting with all these different A&R people, right? This will circle back to, to answer your question. Yep. Um, so my, I was always intrigued by budget, budgeting. Like how much is it going to cost to make a record? Uh, how much is it going to cost, you know, what are producers ask for, what, what, what their fees are. And again, you have to recognize this was in like two, uh, 2001, 2002. Um, so back in those days, there were still you know exorbitant budgets for for records. Um, so from my vantage point, I started to piece together all of these like I'd read about it in magazines and you know uh, you know whatever magazine or, or or press that I could find at the newsagent about you know music creation in in the grand uh, scope of things. Here I suddenly am in the thick of it, and I'm I'm getting firsthand knowledge from 
you know, a Toby Wright, who's a, a, an amazing friend of mine, who's done some amazing records. Along the way, I've learned so many like little bits and pieces from him, just from texting or hanging out or drinking too much together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's about that, isn't uh, it? Like picking picking your friends' brains. Not teach yeah, me, but let's I, just ex- exchange ideas. Exactly, and that's yeah. why things like this, what you and I are doing right now, are, are so important. It's to share, like, you know. I don't generally talk about this, stuff. like the stuff that I, like this stuff I talk about with my peers. Like if I'm hanging out with a, another producer or an, my A&R guy, um, we talk about this stuff all the time because we're constantly sharing experiences and whatnot so that we can learn from all of them. So to answer your question, how did I get to having to, well, having to be the, the pianist, the keyboard player, the synth guy. I'm creating, I'm sound, now I'm sound designing on, on analog synths. Like, I'm a guitar player. Yeah. I was in a rock band. I'm a guitar player. <laughs> but suddenly, now I'm a string arranger. Uh, I, I, now I, I play piano pretty okay. Um, uh, you know, I do, I do all these different things. I think I've just always had that sort of yearning to learn more. And I just want to be able to do everything. I, I just hate relying on other people. And that's the one thing that I started to, to see this sort of common ground within making a record. Like we spent what, two and a half million dollars making a record. And then that's a, like, that's within one cycle, right? And then you got to recoup that before you make a fucking cent. Uh, yeah. Then yeah. you got to recoup that. <laughs> yeah. Totally. totally. Yeah. Which clearly we did not. Um, but sadly, you know, we, we signed, I think we signed like a five album deal or at least it was at least a three album deal. We, we could have, that, that project should have stayed together. Um, but uh, yeah, it's out of necessity, right? So I, having gone through a, somewhat of an arduous, it became arduous at the end of the day, being in a band with, you know, four totally different personalities uh, that's one massive caveat that I think uh, that's probably why there's not a lot of bands these exactly, days. Because exactly. Yeah. You got to be. Why, yeah. Why put yourself through that nonsense? You no know? one wants to work um, with a fuck with. No, exactly. And even whether they're a, an asshole or a fuck with, it, it's maybe they're just on a totally different trajectory and that's their trajectory and far be it from anyone else to try to like, you know, steer them in a, in a totally different direction. You know what I mean? There's also that as well. But yeah, to answer your question, it, it was out of necessity. Like I, after Memento had, had kind of uh, displaced, I, I took a meeting with my uh, A&R guy at, at our publisher, EMI. And I just, I said to, uh, his name is Matt Messer, great A&R guy. He'd signed uh, Blink-182, cool. uh, System Down, um, like some really great artists. Um, and I asked him, Hey man, so what do I need have to do to transition from guitar player in a band? I just wrote a bunch of songs on that album. It's my album. It's our album. How do I do that for other people? And he gave me a shot. And then within dude, seriously, within six months, I had my first cut on on my first record. Um, it was amazing. So I think it's, it really has to do with your ability to learn fast um, and your, your hunger to learn, I think. And you have to be humbled. You're going to make so many fucking mistakes, but you're meant to because you, you got to learn for those, from those mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I found like trying to learn to mix and I'm not that good at mixing. 
uh, but there's just not many that I many people, to, good people around this area. I, uh, but I would beg to defer, my friends. Oh, really? I've Thank heard you, right? Yeah. No, I, I think you're – see, can I just add? Yeah. The, I think the most important parts about – because mixing is so integral to songwriting and production as well. It's If you can do all of it and not have to rely on anyone else, you're going to have the best version of your vision anyhow. But I think music appreciation should be the number one priority on – every songwriter's list. And what I mean by that is that it's a very broad stroke. What uh, a precision bass sounds like, understand what a Fender Strat sounds like, understand what a cello sounds like, understand what uh, an upright piano sounds like uh, as opposed to a baby grand. So like all those little elements, how to get the, the most killer snare that sounds synthetic but has elements of, of, of acoustic uh, you know, organic to it. All of these little bits and pieces are ultimately going to fall into the one space and where you're going to have the ability to create exactly what you want to create. It's like, you know, you don't wear your shoes out and about without tying your shoelaces. So you have to learn how to tie your shoelaces first. Yeah. You know, totally, totally. But through um, being involved with all these publishing companies and stuff, do you, sort of have your eye on um, potential artists out there that you might go, hey, that person, hey, so-and-so company, check out this person, they, they, they do well. Do you see those kinds of artists, but then often see people making really simple mistakes that are cheapening their brand? Because I know I do. Yeah. I know I do. And yeah. I'm just like, oh, how can you have spent – that much money on putting together a product you're trying to ship to, uh, shop to record companies. But then if that record company was to Google you and say, cool, what's this person doing? Oh, they're playing at a local pub to three people. Um, you know, there's no exclusivity about that. Um, iPads on, on mic stands and you're reading the lyrics is another thing I'm going – Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That's that's you've just cheapened the brand there. Uh, what's some common things that you see that you think uh, it literally runs the gamut of all of that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Times ten. Like so, uh, I, I rarely I stopped going out. Like uh, I, there, there was a point in time where I was involved in going out to to see artists, and you know I'm, I'm hanging out with my A and R guy or. Um, you know, the last real good show that I actually really saw, dude, was yeah. uh, I got to see I got to see Royal Blood's first show in L.A. at the Roxy. Cool. I had no, I had no idea what what or who they were. Uh, my NR guy calls me up. And he's like, "Hey, man, uh, what are you doing tonight?" I'm like, nothing. Do you want to come out and see a show? I'm like, sure. Who's playing? It's like Royal Blood. I'm like, wow, sounds fucking terrible. <laughs> uh, because immediately my mind goes to like Royal Blood. It yeah. sounds like, you know, something that, you know, we did Ozfest already. That was as fun as that was. Waking up to that every day is kind of horrendous. Um, so I'm like, yeah, cool. I'm going out to the Roxy tonight. I'm going to go see this band. Within five minutes of them coming on stage, just absolutely blown away. And of course, I'm the guy that's standing there thinking, dude, there's track. There's got to be this there's, there's track warning here. There's track. There's like... So I'm sitting here listening to like supported elements that are running on tape in the background. It's not. It's just the live two piece, absolutely phenomenal. They run a whole ton of track nowadays, yeah. but 
uh, that's a whole different story. It's pretty common uh, practice to, now, though, isn't it? You have to keep up with the Jones. So, yeah, to circle back, I went out to uh, – we have, the like, regular events here in L.A. at certain clubs. They're, uh, like – god damn, dude, it reminds me of the 80s, what it would have been – I can imagine this is what it was like in the 80s here, but now, like – well, no longer now because that shit live shows aren't happening, and I don't think they're coming back anytime soon. Yeah, that's uh, fine. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge shame. But what was happening was that uh, these uh, promoters were putting on these bills, and these are you know it's a typical sort of the situation where you know you would never hear of this happening in, in on the Gold Coast or anything like that. There's just not enough artists, and there's not enough uh, commerce to to draw. Uh, I I don't believe. Uh, but here in LA, you've got maybe five to ten artists, and they're all of a broad spectrum of genres. But all of these uh, these cats are like they've either had a song on a TV show recently, they've uh, written a co-written a song on someone else's record, but they're embarking on their own solo career. It's a lot of solo artists, yeah, a lot yeah. of female, you know, driven uh, kind of stuff. Um, I, I, at the end of the day, I think th there's too much of it. There's way too much of it. And I think what's happening and what we're seeing happen, especially now, given the circumstances globally, that uh, the cream is rising to the top and all the rest is just literally dying off and falling by the wayside. And rightfully so. Because when I go out to those sort of, they're like live showcases, right? You've got, I'm in a room full of, let me put it this way. If you're playing locally in Los Angeles, you're catering to only one aspect, and that is the music industry. It's not a fan-driven place. It's, it's an industry. It's an entertainment town. Unless you're not going to see a real show unless you're going down to LA Live or the Forum or a real venue. If you're going to, I don't know, I don't want to name venues, <laughs> uh, but if you're going to one of those places that are hosting those sort of those nights of multiple songwriters or what have you, uh, in the in the hopes that uh, you know you're going to help this budding career or get another song on a on a TV show, it's I found that it's too much of the same, and everyone's trying to do the exact same thing, and so it's it's overwhelmingly oversaturated. So nothing really sticks out. I would actually much rather see young, uh, a, a young kid on stage with a laptop and nothing else and just own it. Just be themselves and just show, give me the best performance that you've ever, ever done in your entire life. But be good, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think about people trying to jump onto whatever the latest music trend is? Because I asked this, I remember years ago, when ska was a big thing, um, somebody saying to me, I'm going to start a ska band. And I said, you're too late. No, but it's, it's huge. And I said, yeah, yeah. Those bands have been playing ska and refined it. And it, that became the big thing. And they went looking for it. That's what they play. You're going to try and play that. And it's too late. By the time you get good at it, the next big thing is going to come along, right? I saw a lot of that on the Gold Coast. Like, I think that's probably why, like, my band Tower at the time, like, we were we were doing our own thing. Like, we didn't really adhere to, like, I was a Nirvana fan. Justin was a U2 fan. Stewie was more of a Helmet fan. 
but we all loved Alice in Chains, but we all loved that sort of era. But I was a police fan. Uh, I love Elton John. I, you know, you have to have a, an eclectic sort of broad taste for music. Um, I noticed a lot of bands during throughout that era were kind of, especially when Corn came about on the yeah. scene. Did, did you notice that it was just like there weren't anything like there wasn't anything like this, and then suddenly there was twenty bands that were literally corn ripoffs. Absolutely. What was I doing at the and time? <laughs> I was making uh, prodigy style music before the prodigy got huge. <laughs> yeah, man. No, seriously. Like I remember. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. I'm I'm glad that you introduced me to Marilyn Manson because like I ended up I, I was having lunch with, with the guy every single day when we were on when we were on Spest together. Yeah. Uh, very intelligent, intelligent man. A, so amazing I hear. So I hear. Uh, but you were the first you were the literally the first person to turn me on to what was that record where on the cover he's complete he's in uh, like Yeah, mechanical animals. Mechanical animals. Yep. Uh, this is right about the time that you uh, had put skateboard together and and were delving into that genre of music. Um, it, yeah, there, no one else was doing that. There was it, there was more. That was more of an a, a European blend sounds, which yeah. So I, I don't mean to go off on random tangents, but to answer your question, I. I think it's I think it's cheap. I think if you're going to mimic someone or try to copy or emulate, use it as as an educational tool. Uh, I think, especially from well, yeah, from from a broad sense, as a as a songwriter, uh, from an instrument uh, instrumentalist standpoint, you know, as a guitar player, you know, like I, Jimi Hendrix was my thing, and then it went in, it went from Jimi to Satriani to Vi, and then Cobain. Uh, so I like I refined, got very technical until I just threw it all away and became more me than anything, than any of that stuff. But you want to take like little elements from all of those things, and I think that applies to everything today. Like uh, I constantly like to have pop radio on, but alter, alternate pop, you know, like things like Twenty One Pilots to like they still play Nirvana from time to time. There's a lot of great production skills that are happening today. Where, like, I hate to say this, I'm not a huge fan of him as an artist, but there's an artist called Youngblood, uh, which some of the songs I, I love and I really enjoy. They're very pop, you know, super pop, but there's this angst to it. It almost seems as if it's a little bit too forced, and I think that's why I don't like it. Yeah. But as far as the production is concerned, it's it sounds like a band, but it doesn't. Like 21 Pilots is a classic example of this is a two piece, a drummer and a bass player and a vocalist. But on the record, you can run the gamut from punk rock to super pop to urban in the middle. And I think no one should be afraid of, of experimentation, you know? So when you're, I think when you're trying to out emulate someone, I think it's hard to like, gone to the days where. Uh, if you're going to emulate Sublime or Nirvana, like you're way late in the game. Like people are mashing that stuff together now, and that's the new that's the new industry. I want to hear five songs in one song, and everything better be a hook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. my expectation. 
yeah, yeah. You're very good at writing hooks, man. Like uh, I've heard a few little projects that you've had going last year. Um, or was it, you, you had something going where it was a two-piece with you and somebody else, but then the singer bailed and you did all the vocals yourself. And yeah, uh, I, I yeah. heard a copy of that. I'm just like, that's space singing? That's fucking cool. <laughs> you know, it's – I, one thing, like this, I do pride myself on one thing, and, and and I think I haven't even, I don't believe I've hit my stride yet, and that I don't mean to sound cocky or anything like that at all. I, I just spent, I've spent so much time sort of in like behind the curtain, which I love. I much prefer that, but it's now that I've I've kind of you know picked up all of these skill sets along the way now i have like because that record comes out in a few months from now where i'm actually fronting this thing and, I, and i'm singing and i'm and i'm playing bass it's, it's bass in this just bass drums and myself and vocals um it's a lot of fun and at this point dude like i just i really don't give a shit <laughs> and yeah. i think that i think that's one of the most important uh, one of my managers said to me about a year or two ago, uh, it was great advice. And Mark, if you're watching, thank you. He said, uh, like, just don't care. It, the moment you start caring less, things will start to shift. There is a lot of PTSD kind of stuff that I was dealing with from, you know, being kind of screwed over on some songs and going through the, you know, the record label thing. And the, I've gone through publishers and all that kind of stuff. It can weigh on your shoulders, and if you let it affect you, it can be dangerous, mm. very, very dangerous, not only to yourself, but to the people around you. But there is a, the proverbial penny finally dropped, and I realized, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> do you feel that um, having your, your music uh, placed through digital daggers, etc. That having that affords you the freedom to not give a fuck and, and create other music on the side that, hey, if I actually knuckle down and do this as I'm expected, that yeah. means that affords me more time to do whatever the fuck I want. Is that how it works for you? Yeah, that's that's the big sort of caveat with all of this is that I, I'm in a very interesting sort of position in which I've afforded myself this luxury of of being able to do whatever it is whenever I want. Um, but I mean, having said that, that doesn't come without its hard work and, it, and it's, you know, it took me a long time just to, to, you know, it wasn't until about probably 2013, like, you know, it's one thing to sign a multi-million dollar record deal and, you know, you know, publishing deals and all that kind of stuff and money generating. There's a lot of people to, that, that get paid before you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the attorneys, the management and, and the, the splits between the labels and publishers and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to keep your head above water when you do. And hopefully if you learn, if you go through this sort of arduous process, you learn a couple of things along the way. You kind of learn how to at least wade until you can just completely just bathe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you mentioned just about all the splits and everything. Now, something that gets a term that gets thrown around a lot that I don't think people are very clear on is uh, points. You know, if somebody yep. says, yeah, I'll help you on that for X points. Um, yeah. Do you want to explain to people what that actually means? Yeah. So one point is 1%. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 1%, cool. Yeah. Of, so of the, the, um, of the actual songwriting or. Yeah. Yeah. To be yeah. So that's well, it's determined. So, um, and this is what's so great. This is what's amazing about 
the music industry is that what what you're dealing with is intellectual property, right? Um, so going back to the self-sufficiency, myself, I, I record my own masters. So I have my own studio down in Chinatown. I record everything there. Uh, sometimes I mix there. Basically, I have a finished product that's mine. And I didn't pay anyone else to, to help out in any sort of way. Um, now this master recording is mine, but I also co-wrote the song, or if it's a song that I wrote myself. So I own 100% of the master and 100% of the publishing. Uh, if I'm within, oh, so let's just say it's a co-write, right? So let's take Digital Daggers for an ex as an example. Uh, I like to be very, very fair, and I like to split things straight down the middle. If the work uh, the workflow is uh, is balanced so that both parties are actually pulling their weight, right? So in, in a great hypothetical situation, both parties are sharing it equally because they're putting equal amounts of working. Yep. So on the master side, so, okay, within publishing and re re releasing a song and licensing. So uh, let's say... Um, well, okay, so the quick answer to your question is 1.1%. If you're yep. a producer, yep. usually a producer would say, if I'm working with an artist, I'm going to take, I'm going to take five points. Is that and a, probably, a typical split, five points? Well, it's a good, it's a good place to start because uh, I'm anticipating that person is going to come back and say, well, we can allocate two. And then I will say, well, I, I can go as low as three. You know, it's again, it's a negotiational sort of, sort of aspect of things yep. and and you you come to an agreement as to wherever you come to you know and that's i don't think anyone's really obligated at this point i don't think that there's a standard number anymore um because the playing field is is rapidly changing yeah um, yep. um and again to urge people to be more self-sufficient that's less points and less percentages that you're going to have to share with other people but traditionally, in a songwriting aspect, it, um, um, I like to split it right down the middle. Uh, from a le legal standpoint, you know, a lot I've seen a lot of singers kind of bring this up, like, oh, you know, legally, you know, it's it's a mel lyric and melody. I'm like, yeah, that's great, but you know, it's 2020 or it's 2015 or it's you know 2010. Yeah. We live in different times, um, uh, and still, you know, that would hold up, but it's not. It's just not how things really work these days. So I like to split everything 50-50. So if, if, I, if we were to have a song from Digital Daggers get placed in a TV show, Sony ATV would then um, negotiate uh, the rights uh, of licensing between, say, it's an ABC TV show. So ABC and my people at Sony, they negotiate a deal, and then they present that deal to us. We either approve it or if we, I usually, I would usually say, hey, let's, you know, throw in another five or another 10K there. Yeah. I've gotten away with that many a time. Um, now I just don't even bother. It's like, I, I don't really care. Cool. That's amazing. The, the long, the long-term effects of having a song in a TV show that's going to hit, you know, millions and millions of people is far greater than the immediate sort of payout that you would get, you know. Um, but, you know, traditionally... And full disclosure, like there was some cases where, um, you know, you'd be making like, you know, twenty to forty thousand dollars in in one 
in one sync, and that's for thirty seconds of a, uh, of your music in a TV show. Yeah, it's insane, now folks, right? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stop you there. Did you hear what Jason just said there? Everyone is bitching about streaming and how little the artist receives, and that's why I wanted to bring Jason on here to um, talk about music syncing and etc. Because did you just hear that fucking figure? That that screw your streaming, sync, sync, sync or swim, baby. Well, I'll go you one even further. And again, like I, I, I usually try to preface it. P- people who know me personally here know this is just who I am. It's not about not like uh, throwing around numbers to to say, hey, look at me, blah 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 blah. It's for me, it's full disclosure so that other people can understand that there are opportunities there that are real and they're there for anyone and everyone. Uh, we had a song uh, that was running in a, um, a Ferrero Raffaello uh, TV spot, like, you know, the chocolates, right? I'm glad you can say that. Say that again. <laughs> so uh, it aired. Um, you probably never had seen it. It, it never aired here. It, it aired in Brazil, United Arab Emirates, Italy, uh, and like maybe two or three other regions. Like global regions, um, but nonetheless, it wasn't in the U.S. or Australia or anything like that. We ended up renegotiating that because we did yearly deals. So every twelve months, that if they wanted to reuse that ad, that we had to renegotiate that. Cool. So I was going to ask you about that. Is it an ongoing thing? So as you get reruns of things, that means more money in your pocket again. It can, especially when it comes to commercial use, like uh, ad spots. With the TV shows, they tend to not they, they want to do it in perpetuity. Uh, it's be, that's become a very ubiquitous thing now. Like gone are the days where, you know, if you're Drake, that's a totally different story. Um, but if you're me and uh, you, uh, they want to use one of your songs in a TV show. I'll, I asked. I kept asking, asking until the point where even my publisher said, "It's that's just how it rolls these days." Yep. Uh, what that means is that um, that that license for that particular episode that's in perpetuity. But the uh, the back end stuff, whether uh, it's ASCAP or APRA in Australia, your PRO, your performing rights organization, is going to pay you out royalties on based upon performance, like streaming royalties, like residuals, that every time that, uh, you know, all of these shows are on Netflix and Hulu and blah, 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 blah. It just, keep, it just keeps rolling in. That, that money will never, ever go away. The more people, you know, watch those shows. And if you're lucky and fortunate, see, this is the, beauty, the beautiful thing, is that it, it all translates into, into streaming. Um, you know, I, I, have a, I have an entity that most people probably have never heard of, but yet you probably heard one of my songs in one of the one of these shows that you probably watched and not recognized who it is because it's so far under the radar. There is a massive amount of fans that we have for this one project to the point where we're bringing in, you know, a considerable amount of money on a yearly basis. And that's po- because either people are just watching one of the shows uh, now, like that, maybe they just started watching um, How to Get Away with Murder, and they've heard this one song and they want to find out who it is, and then suddenly they've just bought all of your records, and now they're streaming all of your songs. It it's it's all uh, an exponential growth. Does that kind of make sense? So yeah, again, totally. yeah, the, the 
the streaming aspect thing, like when, when Spotify first became a thing, I remember sort of playing with it to the point where, because we were still doing digital releases, meaning that uh, you had to buy it, whether it be a la, a la carte or purchase the record. So you'd be getting a premium of income from that purchase of the record against streaming. And you know people like Taylor Swift and Coldplay and, and big artists do this all the time. If you release a record, don't make it available on Spotify. If you have um, any sort of monicum of a fan base or awareness out there and some traction, use that to your advantage. From a, you know, don't ever fail from being a business person. I would offer that record for digital download only first for maybe the first two or three months or maybe even the first week. You'd be surprised if you have enough fans. People will buy that if they want it because they want it now, mm-hmm. even though it's going to be streaming in a month or two from now. But then give an incentive. Well, the, maybe the streaming version has two additional tracks in a live version. Yeah. Maybe this one – you know what I mean? There's yep. so many different ways that you yep. can really extrapolate it's strange times for, for musicians. I mean, we've had that side of things through record sales, etc., pulled pulled out from under us, and now we can't play anywhere. Um, yeah. So I, I have seen a lot of people doing the streaming thing, and, and I think that's starting to, to sort out the men from the boys. Don't want to sound sexist by using that, that term, but it's oh, the first thing. You, it's, go, mate. You mean, streaming, you mean streaming as far as, like, performing live? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people right. at home. Yeah, so doing it. Um, so I watched Steve Vai. He's got some great things going down. Uh, I, I totally caught him out that his live performances weren't live. They were pre-recorded. Um, yeah. Just like a local yeah. group I know who are posting, who are going live on Sunday. No, you pre-recorded it yesterday or the day before. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, there's some people. Paul Kelly, I saw him just turn on a thing and it was just captivating it was just like yeah you don't need tricks man you're just fucking the shit and then i've seen other he, people and i was talking to scott Carr from from kids in the kitchen the other a uh, couple of weeks ago about this and we were having a conversation we go blah 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 and then we both said at the same time in referral to all these people streaming like cheapening their brand and yeah i think it is kind of sorting out when you go see someone live you're baffled by volume uh, and stuff, yeah. and yeah, you start to see, oh, maybe they're not as good as what I thought. And then there's other people you go, oh my god, you you don't need any studio trickery or anything. You're just, yeah, yeah, you're just gifted. Yeah, there's a weird, there's a so it's again, it, it it's so very divided. Uh, like I, I've with some artists that have come into my studio and. Uh, like my role, my job is to co-write a song and at least produce uh, a listenable demo by the end of that day or, or at least the next day when I go in there without the artist. But I, I've worked with some people that have been you know, rather undesirable as far as their talent is concerned, but yet they just signed a massive record deal and I've got to write a song for them, right? I started to uh, understand very, very quickly, and this is no disrespect to any of those people, because for one, kudos to them for the fact that they got exactly what they needed to provide for them to create their art. As a guitar player, I started to recognize, you know, because I, I prided myself on, on my ability to play. Like I wanted to be a, a, somewhat of a virtuoso within my instrument. I wanted to know it so well that. 
not only impress other people because I want to be an entertainer with that within that light, but also impress myself. You know, yep. to keep further furthering my ability. Gone are the days of which uh, that I, I think the the fame and the fortune and and the recognition has become uh, priority to the fundamental of music. Now that used to piss me off a lot because you know that that I took it personally, but never take anything personally. Uh, I far be it for me to be pissed off because someone else didn't do their own due diligence and their own hard work and be good at what they're supposed to be doing or what at least what they're selling themselves off to be. I think take away all of that, and I think that's where we're at now. I think the the new the new artists are the ones that are behind the screen. And, it, you know, it's funny you bring up that, like, there's, like you just said before, there's an artist that uh, is going to go on live, but they pre-recorded it, right? Yep. You take a look at anything that Trent Reznor has done as as live material, and it's, you know, like, you can hear, like, dude, you're not playing that on your right hand. Yep. Wait, I still hear this thing happening. Like, it's all about pa that packaging that, and I think... There's this fine line, right, between because, like, you and I know best because we're instrumentalists and, and we pride ourselves on our ability to play our instruments. But there's that fine line of, hey, you know, we're the first ones that are going to point out and say, no, 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 you're not doing that. You're, that that's that's not what yeah, you're playing. Yeah, totally. That's totally. what I'm doing. Yep. Yep. I think throwing that out the window is, is probably the best thing that we can do. It, as sad as that is to say, because I think people should hold, uh, have pride within themselves and their abilities first and foremost, and then package yourself. It's not like Trent Reznor isn't talented, um, but he packages himself in such a way so that it's, you know, there are imperfections there that only he wants you to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, I mean, it's common practice now to run tracks to recreate the sound of the record and that's been happening for a long time um i did a gig uh probably about five years ago now it was the last show i ever did with the, the queen show that i was in and we played this huge show uh, with with ice house and um yeah we were told not to try and meet Ivor davies because he's a very private person but no it turns out he was a huge brian may fan and he tracked me down and just cornered me and was just picking my brains about my rig and everything but therefore i picked their brains and i was like so i heard i i, I was hearing little bits of percussion like in great southern land um my international viewers probably don't know ice house or these but the, these guys are an institution over here right i just watched that music video the yeah. other day like so three little, days ago little clicks you know like little percussion you know, the little clave sounds and stuff um and I, yeah and it's and it was all on track and like because i asked you know you guys run tracks and they said man we've been running tracks since 85 or something yeah, yeah. the drummer <laughs> drummer told me he joined in like 85 or something and they were running tracks since then so it's pretty yeah. common practice um, and it's, even down, man, I was talking to, to Sankey about this a while ago. Um, people probably uh, might know John Sankey, who's another Gold Coast guy, went over to LA and stuff and similar story to yourself. Great drummer. Yeah. Yeah. So when I play with guys from Fear Factory and all that kind of thing, um, he was in Devil You Know, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What were they called before? They had a bit of a name change, didn't they? No, they've changed. They've changed the name to "Burn, Burn the Flag," "Raise the Flag," or something like that. But devil, you know, I was quizzing him 
about some stuff, about running tracks and everything. And he told me what he's got running in his cans live is a click and he's got the guitar parts from the album playing. He's listening to that. He's not listening to the guitar playing live. He's playing along yeah. to the fucking guitar parts from the record in case old mate over here is having a shocking night. It's not going to affect him. Yeah. He's playing along to the fucking record. Yeah, and, yeah, and, most and definitely. So can, can you just talk about running tracks and stuff? And I, I, I warned you about this, that I'm going to be constantly drinking coffee and I'm going to just have a bathroom break while you explain to people. But, um, okay. yeah, can you explain to people how, how people are going about pulling off having tracks running live these days? Because I, I know you yeah. had quite a cool rig going on a couple of years ago that you showed me. So, Yeah, yeah. There's a multitude of different ways to do it. And, um, you know, I used to uh, – I'm going to shut this window real quick. Excuse me for one second. Um, uh, It's, it's, it's an imperative part of live performance these days. And and I, it used to pay me to say this even like, so when we we were on Ozfest, um, I would, I I won't say which band it was very massive, well-known band. And it kind of broke my heart for a second because I would stand side of stage and I watched them perform, you know, this is like in front of like 40, 50,000 people, what have you every day. And, uh, it's the same show every day. And I'm hearing all these additional guitar parts. I'm hearing harmonies that aren't happening. People are, they're cha- like, it's choreographed so much so that, you know, they're changing, uh, from, you know, different sides of the stage on key every single night at every point in it, every song. And I, uh, when they got off stage, we, I think we went out to dinner all together one night. And I asked, uh, be careful, I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, I asked the drummer, like, hey, man, so you guys are obviously running track. Like, why? Like, why? And he explained it to me. And the singer, uh, I wish I could name this. I, I don't know why I'm withholding. Uh, but uh, he explained it to me in such a way that he said, look, the punter is the most important person in in the venue every single night. And you want to give them exactly what they want to hear. And that is ultimately putting the CD in their home uh, entertainment uh, system and listening to that. And by the time that they get to the show, they're hearing that in their heads anyhow. Mm -hmm. Um, So the closer that you can be to that, the better. And again, like I've watched – you know, bands even here locally and even on, on large tours uh, with it, save for maybe a, a handful of bands like, say, um, Royal Blood, for example. But there's such a massive difference between the band that's not running tracks that just sounds like a high school band. And then you've got the full even if it's just a stereo track you know, of just little ancillary things that are supporting everything, it's going to sound so much better. So the way, there's, there's so many different ways to do this uh, from a tech, technological standpoint. The old way used to be running DAT tape, but, you know, with Tapes vibration. Chew. Tapes chew. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, boy. And, yep. you, know, vi- you know, massive vibrations can screw that, that stuff up yep. as well. Um, then, you know, came the laptop era, you know, hard drives with, yep. you know, plate spinning hard drives. Nope. Yep. No, 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 no. Yep. Um, so cut to now we've got, uh, what I use, um, is the SBDSX, oh, cool. which is, a, yeah, it's a drum pad. So, yep. 
you know, I'm not going to be running, I'm not running cues. I don't have time for that. I've got a myriad of other things that I need to be playing and, and whatnot. Uh, drummer is going to take care of that, of course, because he's the one who controls time. So why not have this on a pad system? And then if you're smart enough, you can, you know, connect everything into MIDI and control lighting, control all sorts of different things. But I would su suggest anyone that's any young musician who's trying to run sort of backing track kind of stuff, um, kind of, you know, uh, kill two birds with one stone by purchasing uh, something that's also going to be playable, but that's also have... Idea. Yeah, yeah. Great idea. And they're, they're relatively cheap. I've got to bring up some um, fails that I've seen with backing tracks. Um, and one of, the, one of them, and I learned this the hard way, and this was in Scaphoid that you played with me in. Um, so just to explain, that was pretty much, I was, I'm like you, a multi-instrumentalist, and I just recorded everything myself. And then I'd just get a couple of mates to come and play live. Um, I was running a four-track mini-disc player. The yeah. old Yamaha ones. So I, I assigned two tracks to the stereo elements. Uh, I assigned one track to bass. I had my friend Sharpie playing either bass or rhythm guitar, depending on what the song needed at the time. If we had synth bass, he'd play rhythm guitar. Um, and then I had another track of just all the percussion elements, so I could feed four, four to the front of house. Um, then I had that, that also generated uh, MIDI time code, uh, not MIDI clock. It was set, yeah, so I'd put in clock. And then I had a, a drum machine synced to that via MIDI cable for, for the drummer. So he was listening to it just a, a drum machine and he could adjust that to whatever he wanted. We talked about tapes chewing and stuff. Now you mentioned the, the Rose and Crown. At the Rosie one night, I had my little rig. I just had this little case that I'd opened up and, yep, here we go, ready to go. Vibrations. I had it on the yeah. thing. As soon as the kick drum started coming in, it would make the it made the mini disc jump, and it would jump to a different part of the song. And we're yeah. playing, and then all of a sudden, I just the drummer would just and sort of jump time slightly, and I'm hearing the track going, "What the fuck?" And after it happened a couple of times, my mate who was still in front of house ran down and put something under the rig to stop the vibration. So that was a monumental fail. CD oh. when I was playing for Tony Lee Scott, um, who was a Sony a solo solo artist signed to Sony back in 2000. Um, I'm going to talk about how I got that gig too. I'll just write that down um, because that was an interesting story. But with Tony, he was Sony's um, big Australian artist they were trying to push at the time and Leah Haywood was the, the female. And we'd tour around a lot. Um, I say tour. For pop artists, there's a lot of promo stuff that goes on that people probably aren't aware of where you're doing performances in boardrooms of radio stations and um, shopping centers and the like. We were doing, there was a huge fucking shopping center in Melbourne, multi-level, uh, I don't know Melbourne that well, it could have been like a Westfield or something like that. And yeah. Leah had, she was, she was like a solo female with two backing dancers basically and they were just running cds and then she she had there was a scratch on her cd and she went to do her big single and it would get to a point and skip 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 oh let's just try that again got to the same place it's like oh fuck i hope you guys brought it back up i can't remember if they did or not but that was another monumental fuck up that i saw then there's the ashley simpson incident isn't it that buried her career on live tv oh dude. they play, so, press play on the wrong fucking song i almost so yeah well 
Yeah, that was Seriously. an interesting situation. I got so I was at a wedding uh, here in Beverly Hills. Uh, it was my A and R guy's wedding at the time. So you can imagine, like this this wedding was like a three hundred fifty thousand dollar wedding, right? It's ridiculous. Walking into the place, the Beverly Hills Hotel or wherever the hell this place was. Rose petals all over the place. There was an instrumental band just playing Radiohead songs, but in this jazz sort of way. It was very bizarre. But later on that night, if you can imagine, like here's one of these big wigs from EMI Music Publishing, and you've just got like anyone who's anyone in the music industry is at this wedding. I got corralled later that evening because the Ashley Simpson thing had just happened. I think it was like two days prior. Oh, because I had. Yeah, I had flown. I was actually on tour. I was on tour with uh, Kevin from Candlebox. We were touring through the the states, and I actually my guitar tech did the last two shows for me because I wanted to fly home and be at this wedding for my for my bro, my A and R guy. And later that evening, I get accosted by like five very reputable, great people in the music industry that are begging me to be Ashley Simpson's new guitar player because of oh. this instance. Oh really? Did now. everyone split? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Oh god. And I, I literally, I'm kind of bummed. I said no, because um, you know, coming from being in a rock band, that sort of whole sort of element of of the industry, and then suddenly, oh, my next gig's going to be Ashley Simpson. Retrospectively, I wish I had taken that because it probably only would have lasted six months anyhow. Because that tour only lasted six months, and I think she only did maybe one other record after that. But yeah, anyway, sorry. Yeah, Side that's note. one way to yeah, yeah, being caught out like that. So I mean, there's there's using it to mime and hide the fact that you don't have the chops to pull it off live. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say something here. I when I worked at Apple, there was a a guy that worked and he was maybe 10 years younger than me um but he had lived in the states for a little while he's an aussie guy and he toured with air supply oh and wow yeah 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 so and he told me about running the tracks there's two singers there's the the guy who plays um left-handed guitar and sings which link if you're still watching for some reason when i see air supply that the left-handed guitar player dude just reminds me of you link that's weird but the little guy from what i was told wasn't singing live. He'd talk in between songs. The other guy was singing live, but yeah, other guy, yeah. So I'm not sure whether his voice just wasn't up to scratch anymore. Or There's rumors of Kiss now running tracks because Paul Stanley just can't hear it. I'm not going to confirm or deny anything. It's just rumors that I've heard, but people have put out uh, performances I, I of different things. They're going, ah, compare this, man. It's exactly the same. What's going on here? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, so you can either enhance it. I, I went and saw Southern Suns recently. They had a bit of a oh, reunion. Yeah, I saw them. And they were running tracks, and um, Phil Buckle wasn't touring with them. But they got Reggie, their old guitar player, back, who played on the first album and toured with them, and then left. Not, not through bad things. He was just really busy with life. Uh, but he came back, and the first thing I noticed when they came on, it's like, oh, wow, you got Phil Buckle's vocals kicking along here. You know, it was very, very obvious. Um, What's... What's the singer from Southern Sun's name? Uh, depending on Jack Jones is what he was then, but professionally in America, he's known as Irwin Thomas. Irwin. Yeah, Irwin, so I, I've okay. hit up Irwin so, to come on as well for a chat, so um, I'm hoping to get him on. He and I, so I met, I'm just trying to see if I still have his number in my phone. I do. Uh, so I'm assuming he's back in Australia. Yeah. 
I, I'm you got to reach out. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah, you got to reach out to him for me because so he and I uh, and Jess, we were all hanging out together for a good it was like months, months. He yep. wanted to uh, he wanted to do some co-writing with me, and cool. we just never. Yeah, I, I still want to do it. The guy is so talented. Yeah, he, yeah. I'll get his contacts, man. I'll, I'll hand it over to you, and if you want to reconnect, awesome. yeah, Please, yeah. yeah I've spoken to him in such a long guy. He's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. He was really cool yeah. to me when I was a fan when I was like 16, 17. Um, and he was a young gun. Like I had known of Jack as he was known in Australia back then. Um, when he was 14 years old, like he was in a cover band called Hans Valen, which was a Van Halen tribute band. So yeah, I'd, I'd yeah, heard yeah. of him. I'd heard of him because, you know, I was a young fella playing around town and people would bring up two players to me all the time and saying, oh, keep it up. You'll be as good as the other one was. First one was keep it up. You'll be as good as Keith one day. Keith from <laughs> Brisbane, everyone used to say. Well, Keith was actually from the Sunshine Coast and Keith was Keith fucking Urban before he yeah. went to the states and the other one was yeah. jack everyone used to go man you're great you should check out this other guy um he was a couple of years older than me uh, this kid from down um, melbourne way jack jones you know he absolutely shreds and yeah so um yeah now i've got a couple of people keith's like actually playing uh keith's actually playing today in uh, at the opry doing a live stream oh okay i was going to say what you're allowed to, to play but he's doing a live stream yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I just hooked up parents with uh, the live stream so they can yeah, watch yeah. it back in the spread. Yeah. Keith, 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 I got to watch a Silvershare show here in LA with, uh, it was myself, Sean from Seether, Keith, and Nicole Kidman. And we're all, all four of us are standing there in this little private box, just screaming at the top of our lungs, singing uh, Silverchair songs together. It was amazing. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah. But I was going to say about Jack, like, um, so he was a bit of an idol of mine. Um, and, but I've got to say he was very cool. The fact that um, after shows, I'd go and hang out with him at, at his hotel room and stuff and just talk shop and stuff. And I was a 17, 18-year-old kid. And you're just like, he, oh, wow, you, you can tell who's cool. You can tell who's cool and who's yeah. going to be a fuckwit. And, um, yeah, I think he realized that I wasn't going to cause trouble and shit for him. And, yeah. Although I'd, I'd often yeah. go to, I can remember taking pretty girl friends of mine. They weren't my girlfriends, but just female friends of mine. And he would sort of try it on and stuff. And I was like, that's cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> She's out of my league. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was going to mention before, we talked about when I, I played for Tony Lee Scott. And it was really weird how I got that gig. Um, and this touches on just presenting yourself um, and all the things that go on into being an artist. I was working at CFM, the radio station, in, and they were based yeah. in South. I say CFM, it was CFM Gold FM was the same place, and I was a producer there, creating commercials and, and stuff. And on my lunch break, I went to go visit a guy who had a little studio there, um, in in Southport. And I had crazy red hair at the time, uh, bright fire engine red, and I I had my big skateboard. I I, I got a longboard and I, I rocked in. I walked in this dude's student studio and tony was actually there and you remember tony from zenith right the zenith days yeah hmm. I, I keep mentioning tony lee scott he was tony from the lead singer of zenith yeah yeah so he went on and he became uh sony's big number one uh, uh male artist they were pushing at the time and i yeah i got the gig playing with him how Amazing. i got the gig i walked into this studio and tony was there with his guitar player scotty from zenith as well who went on out uh, to do the thing i've walked in and talking and Tony didn't remember me from 
Nemesis and those kinds of bands that we used to play with. And he's taken one look at me and nudged Scotty and goes, someone like this dude, right? And he, t- goes, he goes, hey, mate, do you reckon you could learn to mime the guitar in six months? And Scott, Scotty's looked at him and gone, like, dude, don't you remember Rick? You know? Yeah. And he goes, no, no. And he goes, man, he plays guitar. And I'm like, oh, really? You're hired. He'd never heard me play. It was the fact Amazing. that I had red hair, bright red hair, uh, and looked the part at the time. And he had pretty much Zenith play on the record. And this is going to sound really shit. This is going to sound really shit. And I think it is shit. But Sony didn't want a Polynesian band backing him. That's that's pretty crap. That's pretty crap. So they they had them play on the record and he wanted Tony to go out and find some cool-looking fuckers to play with him live, even if they mimed. That's pretty crap. I'm lucky that I was the guy that walked in at the time. But yeah, yeah, that's just how things work. So people have got to bear in mind, if you're trying to sell yourself as an artist, and this is a sad fact, MTV changed this, um, you've got to look the part. Nobody's. Somebody brought up the fact to me that in this day and age, Stevie Wonder probably wouldn't get a record deal. How shit's that? I don't know. I wouldn't go as far as that because I think at the end of the day, talent surpasses. Uh, but I mean, ag- again, you also have to. I. It's almost like comparing, and I'm not supporting that si- sort of behavior whatsoever because it's uh, it's not right. But from a marketing standpoint, you have to always sort of consider the other side of the fence, right? So from a large conglomerate like a Sony. Of course, they're going to go there. You always want to lead with your best foot forward, right? So in their eyes, the the typical makeup of what, uh, you know, a, you know, marketable band is supposed to look like, they're going with that. As a, like take Millie Vanilli, for example, right? Yeah, that's a perfect example. Classic yeah. example. Yeah. And again, like, I love to make money. I think everyone should should uh i think the relationship that people have with finance is a little skewed uh i think there's this fear or the i i don't know i I think that's another that's a totally different psychological you did say you wanted to touch on that so maybe we should touch on finances yeah yeah well this like in the sense of um you know it's almost it's like a it's very um taboo you know it's not meant to be talked about and i think that's the problem People aren't educated uh, enough to uh, allow themselves the opportunity to make money. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think given in, in the last five to ten years, there's been this sort of interesting uh, wash of um, capitalism bad uh, sort of ideology, which, I, which is very, very dangerous because the other version of which is far more dangerous than anything capitalism could ever sure. uh, do. Can you just meet you somewhere know? in the middle, please? <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think that that, like, I, I feel like we've been there for the last, <laughs> pretty much the last hundred years ever since this system has been sort of residing. Unfortunately, we're just, what what we're experiencing right now is is a reset of which. And I think, you know, it's just going to start over again. I think people need to start looking more towards history uh, that you'll you'll get a clearer vantage point of what the future uh, holds if you take a closer look at history because it does repeat and it repeats for a reason because yep. it's time for change. Yep. But it's been coming a while. Yeah. What's that? It's been coming a while. Yeah, it's it's been a long time coming, and I think you know I 
I don't want to sit here and say that I have a crystal ball, uh, but I think the writing's on the writing is on the wall is is what's about to happen, and I think a discussion of like this. So, like, I'd love to continue doing this further intermittently to help. I think I, I have a very I have an interesting standpoint or perspective having done the things that I've done, been involved with the people and 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 stuff that I've I've done over the years to bring me to a point where I, 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 I do this for a living, you know, um, I want to be able to share anything and everything, uh, with everyone so that they have at least an opportunity to do so because trust me, no one. And I know that, you know, this as well, because you went through the same thing. No one has been there to show us how to do any of this. We've had to figure it out ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, it's all about whether you have the stamina to to persevere. Because a lot of people just sort of will fall by the wayside because they, they just give up. Now, you, you mentioned know? finances, because- man. Like a lot of people equate fame with money, and that's not the case. And I'm going to bring this up. Uh, uh, I used to live with the guys from Sunk Lodo. Oh, he's gone for a walk. Okay, I'm going to just cut to me. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. He's I just back. had to. <laughs> yeah, you're right, mate. So, um, you know, the band Sunk Lodo. Yeah. So I yeah. lived at um, the family home with Jason's, uh, Jason and Dane's dad, basically, and, and Dane was still there, Dibs, as we all call him. Um, Jason had moved out at that stage. But um, they were very popular. They were, what, were the biggest metal band in Australia at the time. Yeah. I'd go out for a drink with Jason, and he had dudes lined up at the bar want to talk to him and shake his hand and and all that shit the guy couldn't afford to buy his own drink mate you know Man. um i i i played in 1927 for a while with and um eric wiedemann you know he he lost all all, all his stuff you know and a divorce and stuff so finances it's not gonna keep rolling in people gotta understand that and when i was at cfm i uh, i did a voiceover session late one night with killing heidi who were really big at the time and you got the, the core of the band, which was the brother and the sister. The other two guys were just hired hands. They basically walked into the studio and said, yeah. hi, we're killing Heidi. And the other two guys went, we're done now? Cool, we'll be in the van. And then Jesse and Ella hung out and did the rest of us. But they invited me to the show that night. And I was talking to Jesse afterwards. This is the, the, the brother. And I said to him, dude, I've, I know you're really in the public eye and everything right now and king of the world I've, I've had a few friends that have been in that situation just be really wise with whatever's coming your way because it's not it won't last as long as you're gonna you're hoping for and yeah you're gonna have to keep it and i remember him looking at me going sort of yeah whatever mate i'm fucking i'm doing pretty good right now you know yeah. um and it, but it is true isn't it like for especially in the pop was- world you've only got you've got a sure a, one kind of shot at it. It's very rare that you've got people with a lasting career in that world. That's for sure. Well, yeah, I think primarily because of what their trajectory is and what their what their goals are, and that is ultimately that sort of, you know, the end goal. I don't know. I think, you know, you take a look at someone like Madonna, for example. Like that's a classic example of someone. That's a brand. It's like Katy Perry is a brand. Kelly Clarkson is a brand. These people aspire to be their own entity, so that they are this unlimited brand. And once you, if you do obtain that and you get to that sort of status, it can be never ending. Like ridiculous. Very rare. Though. Very rare. 
it's it's you'd be surprised. You'd be you, I I think it's more upon it, it more hinders upon how well you can uh, fulcrum within the different sort of aspects of the industry. Yeah. So I was going to say you've got to actually adapt to what's going on now. Bowie, exactly. Bowie was a master at it, man. So oh, yeah. my, people say, oh, oh you, you like Bowie? Yeah, what's your favorite album? And I say, Earthling. And they go, what? Yeah. I say, Earthling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. never heard of it. Totally. It's like, well, drum and bass was the big thing going on in, in Europe at the time, or jungle. So yeah. he didn't say, no, I'm David Bowie. I'd make this kind of music. He went, fuck it. Let's get the best producers in on this and let's create some, some fucking jungle. And... Um, I love that record. And on the same record, he worked with Trent Reznor with this, on the yeah. song, I'm Afraid of Americans. Yeah. Um, so he kept up with the times. He kept up with the times. Um, you have to, you got to be able to adjust and roll with, uh, just, just real quick, I want to throw a shout out to Jason because Jason just dropped uh, a solo record, Jason Brown from, from Sunk Lodo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he just dropped a, a solo record that he did himself that is phenomenal. Anyone who's watching or listening right now, uh, definitely check it out. It's 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 brilliant. It's a, a very much a departure of what Sunk Loader was, but it's yep. Jason. Yeah, I actually had a little thing going with Jason and Dibs just as a side project, which we didn't really take anywhere. We just recorded a couple of songs, the pheromones. We called it that we called ourselves, <laughs> um, and that was kind of cool to see that that other side of Jason because I first met him when he was a kid, getting lessons at the music school I worked at, and he was this young kid with dreadlocks that sang opera. Like you would not fucking believe. I remember oh the end God. of the year concert, he got up there and sang this opera piece and all, all the women were just crying. And then I got asked to do a gig at the Playroom, an all ages show on a Tuesday night, threw together a little cover band at the time. And that, before they were sunk low, they were called Messiah and they came on afterwards. And yeah. Dibs, was, Dibs was so small, man. He couldn't see over his drum kit. You know, he's like, and I was expecting him to come out and be one of these... That's what I was expecting, man. He came out. He came out and just blasted this fucking metal shit. And then Jason grabbed the mic, and I'm expecting him to sing nicely, and just I'm like, what? It's so funny. So when I was in 28 Days during that, I was a guitar player for 28 Days when what was that record? Upstyle Down. It was like number one record in the country. And had the, uh, the guitar player screwed up his finger, right? So I got the call and I had to learn all that. Luckily, I was already a fan. So, uh, And I had done a tour, uh, some shows with 28 Days, supporting them uh, throughout the country in this other band, which shall remain uh, unnamed. Um, <laughs> but so uh, we were doing this, uh, this tour around Australia a couple of times, supporting Upstyle Down, and Sunk Lodo were on probably about five or six of those shows. And I had met them from way back when, when they were still in Messiah, when Jason was just a kid. And, yeah. um, and then I remember like every night after Kasunk was supporting 28 and late at night, J- it would always be Jason and I sitting in, in the green room and backstage. And which where <laughs> the shit that we're listening to backstage is like opera and, and, and classical music. And we're yep. nerding out on real music and i just it was the first time that i uh found uh, garnered a brand new friend uh bonded uh, and bonding over real music as opposed to just the genres that we were kind of cookie-carded and stuck stuck into at the time i i thought that was really um 
it kind of uh, it was very invigorating and surprising at the time. I thought. Yeah. Yep. Now, if you're a child prodigy, man, you're a child prodigy, and, and yeah, those two brothers totally were. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I get a lot of people say to me about my drum programming, and like, um, they don't believe that it's it's programmed, and I always say to them. Dude, I, I lived at their place. It was a, a multi-level place on the side of a hill. So you drove in up top and then walked down. And they, they had a rehearsal space in the garage above me, above my bedroom. And Dibs would get in there and just practice like uh, all the time while I was sleeping. And and this is the strangest thing. I've, I've had this a couple of times where I've lived at places and they've had drums being recorded there or something. It wakes you up at first. You go, what the fuck? And then it puts you into a deeper sleep. And oh, yeah. I was subconsciously pulling in the stuff that he was practicing. Uh, and then I'd go to, to program and people would go, oh, you got, you got dibs playing on that. I go, no, man, that's me finger banging. Yeah. 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 Oh, so you do uh, – uh, you know what? I, I recently purchased – I just made a record recently on an MPC Live. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen uh, – do you know what those things are? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, they're amazing. The one, uh, this one's got the touch screen and everything. It's a self-sufficient unit. I can yep. take it down to Echo Park and and write songs all day long. Uh, basically, I used to, basically, if people don't know, it's like a series of pads like that on a big controller that you can assign all your individual sounds to. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a door with it. Like it's it's a door, <laughs> like yeah, a, yeah. a workstation. Um, yeah, I, I, usually with daggers, I'm, I'm more of a grid guy when I do programming stuff. Like sometimes I'll play stuff, but I, I'm so uh, mathematical that, and everything of course is on, on a grid. I got like, I hate to say it, but I love the grid. I Me love too. being, well, yeah. to a degree, to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's a time and a place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that, um, I, I have several other producer buddies who they're more of the, the the finger players. I've started to get into it in the last probably I'd say maybe 18 months of actually playing that way myself on pads. I, I find it rather enjoyable. It takes it, you know, it's a lot more fun than sitting there with a mouse and dragging things from bar to bar. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. As fun do you, as that can do be. you find though that if you play to a, to a grid a lot of the time, that um, you get used to that, and that if drummers don't have a good sense of meter, you're just like, "Fuck, dude, you're you're thirty milliseconds behind one minute. You're fucking sixty milliseconds ahead the next, and you can actually hear, you know, the That's increments of them." About that's the beauty about living in Los Angeles. You know, you're, I, I'm in amongst uh, an ocean of amazing talent here. They're yeah. like my drummer for uh, my band, uh, TJ, who's also a, a, a co-writer of, of mine as well. Uh, we just had a billboard, uh, top 40 billboard song in the last, I don't know, whenever, maybe a year or so ago. Um, uh, great drummer, but great songwriter also. Again, it, it's, you you mic the guy up and, and he goes to track something and he's he's dead on because of the experience that he's had in a in a studio environment. Yeah, you know to understand all of those idiosyncratic sort of elements within recording within Pro Tools or something yeah. like that. You know, yeah. I must apologize to folks. I just did change the battery in my camera. I need to get a um, power thing because yeah, these chats chew through my battery. So. Uh, 
Yeah, that's why I, I flicked you then. I might have to adjust that. That looks all right. That'll look. It's about there. That's it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so I find that I, I grew up, I said earlier, before I discovered the guitar, um, keyboards. Remember that TV show Fame that was on TV back yeah. in the 80s? I yeah. wanted to be that keyboard dude, man, that was a one-man <laughs> awesome. fucking band, you know? Um, yeah. And also Howard Jones, Nick Kershaw, all those guys that were big at the time. I wanted to do that. And so I had an organ, and it had a drum machine built into it, and I would fuck around with that, and um, that got my love for it. But uh, I was talking to somebody that was saying about practicing to uh, a metronome. I never did that. I found that very boring. But I always played to machines. So I'm yeah. very picky about drummers. Man, if someone tells me that Virgil, Virgil Donati is their favorite drummer, I don't even want to jam with them because they're concentrating on the wrong thing. Uh, I, mentioned oh, seeing, so. I mentioned seeing Southern Suns recently, and I, I filmed them, and people don't hear it. Man, I've just about every clip that I filmed, he'd go for these massive fucking things. He'd lose the one coming back out of it. I'm like, are you serious, man? How are you... Yeah, people are focusing on the wrong thing here. Yeah, you can fucking... Blah, blah, blah. Phil Rudd, ACDC, you watch as many live clips as you can of them. You show me one where he drops a beat. Show me one. Yeah. He doesn't. No, I don't. It's, it's one thing that I, I, I miss so much in my life. Uh, it's just... Uh, well, for one, it sucks that my, my drummer is out on the East Coast. So when we have to rehearse, there's all, you know... A, a massive uh, commute that, that occurs. Um, going back to Memento, like Justin, myself, Lats, our bass player, and Steve Clark was our drummer, this fantastic jazz-trained drummer. But the one thing that I miss is we used to have this uh, this really great uh, um, like recording studio but rehearsal space in Hollywood. You know, uh, however tall the ceilings were it was this amazing sort of space where we all had so much room uh and our days were this was our job like, you know we're in the studio from 12 p.m and you know justin and i and lats would work until you know midnight some nights but steve would go home to his wife and, and family here uh but just having that ability of having three guys all, I've got my guitar, Lass has got his bass, Justin is over there by the piano and a microphone, and Steve by the drummer, and we're sitting there and we're writing songs from scratch together as a band. That almost never happens anymore. It's mm. so sad. Yeah. But I think it takes a, a certain type of person to survive within that sort of construct as well. You, there's a lot of trust and communication that has to kind of be uh, – outlined for everyone you know it's almost like a rule book of sorts you know but then again bands break up because you know people break those rules um and trust dies and and yeah it's unfortunate yeah. but i miss miss that you, you mentioned about bands breaking up um a mate of mine um i'm not gonna name names but he, he was on a one of the earlier live chats told me about and they were in a, they were Geez, Australia's biggest band around 91 or so. Um, he said when it, whenever it came time to doing a, a new album and they had to split songwriting royalties and stuff, that the drummer and bass player would pretty much turn up to the meeting about how we're going to split this and go, yeah, well, we're fucked, aren't we? 
because some people will split it evenly. Others will go, well, no, man, I, I write all the fucking songs. Why should you get a split on that? It's a big thing, hey. Like, you think people really should talk about that straight up before you even start writing songs or else you're going to end up in blows, basically. Someone's going to yeah, most Yeah, because so the after effects of which are, uh, you know, it, it, um, it spawns um, – uh, resentments to yeah. other members, right? Uh, and again, you know, one might say, well, you know, 25% of nothing is nothing. If you're at, in a sort of predict or a, a, you're at a juncture in which there's no traction, there's no nothing, you think you've got the best song in the world and you're about to release it, and how are we going to split it? Uh, and one might say, well, it hasn't been released yet and there's no money that's coming in, so, you know, what a ridiculous uh, conversation to have. It's not ridiculous. No. It's not at all. And, you know, I, I've been in situations where we've split things equally uh, on the pop. Like, we did that in Memento. Um, or at least we tried to across the board. Memento was kind of an interesting situation because, you know, it, it was originally uh, a, another band. And this was kind of an offshoot of that sort of initial band. So there were some songs there that, that Stewie, Stewie Bass co-wrote. So he had to be, um, you know, uh, um, percentages were, uh, you know, applied to certain people in those sort of uh, situations. But for the most part, the, the whole deal was, you know, the four musketeers split it equally, you know, yeah. so that it doesn't harbor resentment. But... Um, you know, there's other offshoots of, of potentialities of a situation like that because then, you know, band breaks up, there's, but there's still an existing publishing deal. There's only one person left that is uh, actively uh, utilizing their publishing deal. And then so some monies have to be paid back by certain people. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to uh, make it sound like uh, dirtier than, than what it is, but uh, it, it's definitely a conversation that people need to have and they need to have it very seriously and it should be a long discussion and, and I don't think people should uh, be reserved. I think people should be honest when they do have that discussion because you have to play out all scenarios. You, you really don't know what can or cannot happen. So always, again, like be prepared. It's like tying your shoelaces before you go outside. Yeah. You know, same thing applies. And it's funny because we, we mentioned about just that competitive thing that people tend to have when they're young and want to keep things to themselves and all that. And I got to admit, I, I was kind of guilty of that when I was younger. Um, and I'm a completely different headspace now. But it is hard if you know that you're – you've got uh, a bank of cool ideas and stuff that if you bring it to the party that somebody else is going to take credit for that. And, but yeah. yeah. One thing I noticed, and this is something I'll bring up with you. Do you find it a lot easier to work with an artist on their songs than it is for your own because you're too close to your own. But I've found this, that if somebody plays me a song for the first time, I can see it for what it is. So we've talked about Sunk Lodo, their, their last album. I, um, they basically went and spent 30 grand, no, it was 10 grand or something, on demos, presented to Sony, and Sony went, thanks, but no thanks. I think it's over. Oh. And that's when they oh, turned up at my door and said, dude, this is a situation. Everyone said we should have come and saw you in the first place, but we went somewhere else. Help. 
So then and there, Jason and Dibs came into my place. I didn't have any microphones. I'd lent out stuff, and I think I mic'd the kid up with three mics or something, and we recorded a song. But those guys, the better the musician, the more open they are to criticism. Not criticism. Um, direction. Direction. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I sat down, and they had a whole bunch of – song ideas jason did and i workshopped those ideas with them and beat them into songs not just random noise like they originally presented to the the record company so about three quarters of that record was developed at my place in my bedroom but um yeah just it was so apparent when they'd play me the ideas it's like yeah dude when you go into that that second chorus why don't we do the neil finn thing and drop one bar so it anticipates just slightly and um, you know, just little things like that. And they like, yeah. And it, and I find it hard to do that on your own stuff. Um, yeah. Do you agree? Well, yeah, yeah. So, well, this is why I smoke as much weed as I do. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I think actually, um, you know, I used to frown upon uh, utilizing marijuana recreationally uh, massively. I used to frown upon it. And kind of despised people uh, that that used to use it because there's this misnomer, especially in Australia, that oh, if you're if you smoke weed, you're just a dull bludger and and you know you're a waste of space. Yep. Totally to the contrary. <laughs> if if you delve into the differential of strains and all that kind of stuff and the purposes of which, so I utilize uh, certain uh, weed, uh, certain types of strains of weed. So that I can gain um, a third perspective of what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, like, uh, there will be moments where uh, I'm much less in the studio, well, lately, that I, that I would usually be in. But if I'm, if I'm working and writing constantly uh, in writing and production mode, Monday through, through Saturday, usually in the studio every day, and then I would walk to the bar, and for the rest of the night, I'd be sitting on Corona lights with a notepad, with my headphones, and I would buzz myself into getting a third perspective the other version of which was, you know, just smoke a joint and listen to what I've been working on so that I can, oh, yeah, no, that, that chorus needs to, you know, breathe a little first in the yeah, first yeah. one so yeah. that the second chorus can actually have somewhere to go. Little things like that. Um, yeah, from experience working with young talent, newly signed or being developed talent, you know, these people don't know, they don't, they don't look they don't think outside the box that's why they're young and up and coming and people like us who have been around and 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 you know had some successes here or there uh our job is to you know reel that in and kind of take all of the the it's like lego or like a a a puzzle and you're taking all of the cool parts and and you know just shifting them in in such a way so that you know like you're almost the gatekeeper to the label or to the to a and r so that you are going to ultimately present the label something that they can ultimately present the populace with uh-huh. but then there's it's 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 twofold because nowadays there's this weird crazy resurgence of 80s like there's the good elements of which, and that's the, the Nick Kershaw's and the and uh, Howard Jones's and all that kind of stuff, Cindy Lauper, uh, and even P- uh, Peter Gabriel. That that production aspect of which, I feel like some of the stuff that's actually happening here in the U.S. it's it's very avant-garde and very obscure, and there's 
there's some traction to it, but I swear to God, when we look back upon that stuff in five to 10 years from now, it's not going to be revered very well. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, pop will all, like Nirvana was so successful because it was so very pop. Like, you know, it, it's just, it just works. <laughs> Cobain himself said he was just writing nursery rhymes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, you know, it's, don't make it more, you know, I love, I love listening to whatever the hell Trent fucking farts out on a yeah. record. Like, cool, you're going to bring out Ghosts number 22 now? Awesome. I'm going to be into it. I'm going to buy it anyhow. Yeah. I love that stuff. But I also, like, he is has a certain type of genius in a way, in the sense that, like, you know, my most favorite song of his of late has been less than out of the three EPs that, that he um, produced. There's one song that I just gravitate towards the most because there's this pop sensibility to it, but that doesn't say that I don't love everything else about it. Also, you have to have something to anchor to. And I think knowing your space, knowing what people like, the answers are there. They're right in front of your face. You just need to see what – you just need to see them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned Trent, man. And like I said, that Alternative Nation was the gig I saw them at. Remember that festival? Yeah, I was there. How, yeah. How's this, man? I was watching Tool with yeah. um, with Matt, Matt Boland from Rollerball, who's now the lead singer in Outshined, the 90s tribute band. Mike, Mikey's in the house, yeah, yeah, by yeah. the way. Mikey's Mikey, watching. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I, I, I want to get Mikey on. I want to get Mikey on for a chat. Mikey and Maddie are going to be great. Um, but I was standing there with uh, with Matt, and this guy came and stood just in front of us. And Nine Inch Nails, I'd only heard one. I think Closer had come out. I'd seen the film clip, right. and I I said to Matt, "Dude, is that the singer from Nine Inch Nails standing just in front of us?" And I can remember <laughs> to this day, his like like. Um, Matt just turning to me, just, yeah, you know, how casual he's just like, oh. and he sort of just turned to me, he goes, you know, he's probably chewing gum or something. He goes, nah, it's just some fan trying to look like him, eh? And I just went, yeah, okay, okay. And then I watched that guy. Was he short? Well, I watched that guy and this big security guy come and stood next to him. And then I watched them walk and make their way down and then enter the side entrance. And then when Nine Snails came on, I went, fuck me. That was that, was that guy. And I instantly that just changed my world and i'm like why did i not talk to him he was just there uh, how's this though after that gig it was a two-day festival and we had accommodation booked just down the road and i'm walking to um to the hotel and this tarago which was the tour vans of, of, of the day this tarago I- drives past stops and skids and his head pulls out and i hear this ragroy and mikey's gonna know who that is uh former manager of my old band, the Pumpernickels, um, Sparky, drives all the big names. Like, he, you name it, man. Like, Bowie, Madonna, he, he drives them. He picks them up. Uh, and it was was him. And um, and he's going, where are you going, dude? And I'm like, oh, just down the road. we got to – he goes, jump in. He gives us a lift. And I'm, and I'm like, who, who are you driving? He goes, oh, Nine Inch Nails. And I'm just like, can, can I stay in the van, man? I just saw <laughs> them and that just changed my fucking life. He goes, I, he's yeah. like – I. I can't, man. Sorry, sorry. So yeah, I took a little ride in their tour van on the way. Dude, when I when I first moved here, uh, our manager for Memento was a woman uh, by the name of Missy Worth, 
uh, Missy had, you know, managed a lot of people like Jeff Buckley being one of her most cool. notable and also worked with Trent on uh, the downward spiral. If you have an original copy of the downward spiral, one of the first pressings, you'll see Missy's name uh, in the liner notes. Cool. Subsequent copies were removed because they had a massive falling out. So I was at the Roxy one night, Stabbing Westward, one of our friends' bands, Stabbing Westward, we were playing at the Roxy. I'm standing kind of like in the middle, of, you know, back behind the desk. It's a small venue, you know. I'm sure you've been to the Roxy before, right? Uh, in, in the one over here in Brisbane? Or no, in, L.A. In L.A.? No, no, no. Yeah. Lucky oh, Strike gotcha. was the only place I went to when I was there for live music. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, same kind of same kind of size, right? Almost. Yep. So uh, I'm standing there, and uh, I see this kind of short, stocky guy walk up to my manager, Missy, and they start arguing, and then they start screaming at each other. And you, you can't, you can kind of barely hear it because you know Stabbing Westwood's playing on stage, and I see this commotion, and I'm like, okay, oh, all right, asshole, get the fuck out of here. So I walk up. And I, I go to break this up, and I'm like, Missy, you okay? And I put my hand on this guy's chest, and I double take, and it's Trent Reznor. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Trent and Missy are screaming at each other because of. Uh, she never told me exactly what went down, but I don't know. I, you know, Trent seems like a very. I don't. I don't want to say he's a difficult person to work with. I've heard many a story that being the case, but I mean. You know, it takes a certain type of person that I'm sure many people have many stories about myself. Uh, you know, it, there's, you know, there's a, there's a certain point that you reach and then, you know, you become human at a certain point and, yeah, and yeah. you break. <laughs> we all have our moments, that, man. I'm sure there's people that think I'm a fucking knob, but yeah, oh, but, maybe dude, caught me the, on a the, bad my, day. <laughs> my face went from like normal pink to complete white when i'm like holy shit i had shit, my hand my, on his chest because <laughs> he looks like he's about to smash my face and but then it all kind of got very light and awesome <laughs> so weird. i ended up uh, long story long story short i found out that he was a, a fan of, of digital daggers and buys as he, as shit. He, yeah yeah cool which is super I, cool I'm going to wrap things up pretty soon. We've been talking for over two hours, but and when I oh, say wrap things up, that usually goes for another fucking half hour or so. But yeah, been, uh, anything else that you wanted to touch on? Is anybody still watching that wants Jason to touch on anything? I keep calling you Jason, man. I'm still used to calling you from that space. Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> um, I got I got a Jeff Buckley story. I got a Jeff Buckley story. Um, this is passed on to me from someone else. So when I was playing for Sony Tony, as I refer to him, you, you have drivers from the record companies that pick you up that say you know that it says 7 a.m i pick you up we drive to um we were driving somewhere and one of the guys man i forget his name he was a really top guy um told me one time about jeff buckley when jeff came out here for uh his first tour of australia probably the only tour of australia he went and saw the show and he said it was just man Everyone was oh, dead was that, quiet. Was that the show? It's was that the Seagulls show? The show at Seagulls? No, this is in Sydney. This is in Sydney. Oh, okay. And he said he he watched the show and it was and it, like it was so quiet in there when he was singing that you could hear the the chicks behind the bar closing the the cash registers. Said, Ching! It was that's how silent everyone was. And he said everyone was mesmerized. Afterwards, he went to go out out back to to chat to him. And he said there was this line of people trying to get out 
in at the back. So he went in through the back way and went into the toilets. And he said he's going to take a piss. And Jeff Buckley's standing beside him. He's like, hey, man, you realize there's a whole bunch of people waiting? He goes, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a back entrance. Come with me. He said he sat down and hung out with him. And he said, man, you're going to be so huge. And I don't usually do this with my artists, but can I have your autograph? And he said he looked around and there was nothing to sign it with, but there was a piece of wood. And he said, um, he picked up the bit of piece of wood and he bit it and put his teeth marks in it. He went, will this do? <laughs> and, and this, and yeah, so after he died, this guy's saying, man, I've got this bit of wood with Jeff Buckley's teeth marks in it. Teeth marks in it. Oh How my cool God, is that? Good. Yeah. Uh, I got to meet his mother. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, we just signed a Columbia records. What I was doing, I was getting any, uh, any, um, sort of chance I could get to go down to the office. Uh, all of the, uh, most of the labels, there are all sort of conjoined. They used to be conjoined in these buildings. It was Epic Columbia, the MTV studios, all in this one sort of big lot down in Santa Monica. And I would go down there at any chance I could get because I could get free CDs from Columbia. There was cool. this room where you could go in and they'd have these massive big drawers and I'd take all of their promo CDs. So I'd, every, like from Barbara Streisand to ACDC, because they had Epic and uh, Epic had just uh, acquired the ACDC catalog at the time, got all the Jeff Buckley stuff. And uh, Jeff's mother was coming in because they were about to, re uh, they were talking about releasing new stuff. So they were going to meet with uh, the product manager that was our product manager. So I got a chance to meet her um, a couple of times because she was in there quite quite frequently. Um, but uh, it was kind of weird because I, I just come off from reading this book called Dream Brother, which is a really great book, a biography of sorts about uh, not only Jeff, but his father as well. And the chapters kind of go sort of in parallel throughout the book. It's one oh, chapter right, okay. about his yep. A really good book and a really good insight into who Jeff was and finding stories from because my manager Missy she managed Jeff in like up to when he died he, oh, she really? was managing okay. yeah she would tell me stories of how Jeff would come and visit her late at night as a ghost like really eerie kind of stuff um yeah like that that guy unfortunately never got to see the 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 level of respect, I think that he deserved not only through his peers, but I think from from a um, from uh, a marketing standpoint, from being well known. Because there's so many people over. I found it very interesting that a lot of people didn't know who Jeff Buckley was, uh, even when you know, like back in, even in the 2000s, it was it was insane. I didn't really understand it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Uh, I had a friend Mel who was mad on him at the time. Um, oh, Melissa. Yeah, so, Melissa. Yeah. 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 You yeah. know, she works for, for APRA now, right? Yeah. 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 I'm not exactly sure what, what her, her role is. I've kind of lost touch with it. But uh, yeah, she used to be mad on him back in the day and recognized that, yeah, this guy's got something special. Yeah. 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 Hey, Space, to wrap things up, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little, I'm going to play around with something here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try something. I'm going to hit a little button to see if it brings up my countdown. And I'm going to give you. The five W's and an H treatment in two minutes or less. Oh God! So, what does yeah, this mean? I am I am going to put you on the spot. Okay. I'm just going to say. Not, first thing that that pops into your head when I say, and let's see if the timer comes up. Is there a timer there? Yep. 
Is that going? How do I start it? How do I go? It's on the clock. Who? Are you? <laughs> what? And let's talk, make it about, your, about musical stuff. What? Uh, what, what compressor? Uh, where? Um, where, where is this signal chain going? Where's the signal chain going? I'm going to try, I'm moving my head here because I'm trying to move this clock to a place where I can see it. Uh, where? When? Uh, when is sound check? When is sound check? Why? Why is sound check? Why is sound check? <laughs> how? Um, I, how did you get that sound? Gibson or Fender? Fender. Marshall or Fender? Fender. Fender or Vox? Oh, amplification-wise, Vox. I, I'm, I'm moving like this because the counter's behind my camera. We've got a minute. Um, oh, cable or wireless? Oh, cable. Yeah? Like even live? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I want to get tangled. I want, I want to create chaos. <laughs> Door of chat of choice. Uh, Pro Tools. Compressors. Ah, uh, man, you know what? Smack was my favorite thing ever. It was made by Avid or DigiDesign originally, but I gotta say, Arvox. Arvox, the new Arvox from Waves, hands down. Thank you. I love Arvox. And we've got 13 seconds to go. Uh, guitars. Uh, uh, Jaguar, Fender Jaguar. Jaguar. Monitors. Oh. Oh, man. Oh, you know what? Time's I up, loud. but I'm going to let you answer this one. Okay. I got, I swear by these things. I have expensive monitors in my studio, like ridiculous expense. Like it's ridiculous. I want to get rid of them, but I'm not going to. The iLoud micro monitors, I swear by these things. They're even the, the cheaper version, the smaller one, whatever DSP is running in the background on those things, they are to die for. Yeah. I, 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 Everyone should own a pair of the IK Multimedia iLoud. The the two separate micro monitors. Okay, cool. I'm gonna look into that. You you will be blown away. Do people still use NS10s in LA, man? Uh, it's I see them all the time. I see so many people trying to sell them. Um, uh, it's you know it's all about the power amp you're running them off, eh? Oh, most definitely. And a sub. And, and a sub. Yeah. And at the end of the day, so the platform, the platform has completely changed. You know, what was a benchmark, you know, 20, 30 years ago, even 40 years ago? Yeah, that's great. It's great to get a flat tone. But I mean, we listen to music on so many different, a plethora of devices now. It's not, you know, I dare I say, you know, show me a mastering engineer that can really get it all down so it sounds exactly the same on every single device. Bullshit. It's never going to happen. It's impossible. So you can take your NS10s. They're lovely. I see a pair right there. Yep. Or they those new ones. Yep. Yep. No, like, no, yep. If for rock music, hands down, hands down. For electronic music, I find it very difficult to get uh, the response that I want out of them. You ever tried them with a sub? 
like CLA and all those guys do? Yeah, I, I have a, a weird feeling about subwoofers. Uh, I think I so to understand the science behind what those frequencies are doing, I'd much rather rely on the math rather than using a sub because every like you know, how many subs are there? I understand that like some you know you can get a nice you know expensive sub that's going to be nice and chew and flat, but I don't know. I'd much rather rather rely on the math. Yeah. Does that kind of yeah. make sense? Yeah, totally. So I've I've got NS10s and a sub, only because as I mentioned before, I was a producer in radio, um, and they had NS10s. They had NS100s as well, the big Safit mounted big fuckers. They were cool. No one ever used them. I did. Um, oh but god. I got to, and this was a great thing for me. I got to record voice every day, and then wake up and hear it on the radio and go, oh that didn't work. That was too bright. Ooh, that needs yeah. to be a little bit brighter. Um, yeah. So that's why I still lean on NS10s. The mid-range, if you can get the separation, there's no low end. That's why I've got a sub. Um, yeah. I will quite often, when I'm working on my low end, turn off the NS10s and just have the sub to make sure I've still got separation. Still filling the room, yeah. but you're still getting a, you know, you get, you still got that coming through. If you don't have that, you're fucked. Um, but I'm not going to make any, you know, like, I'm 40, what, fucking six or something now. Um, the tinnitus and stuff from over the years, especially in this year. So my top end's lacking, I know that. So I've got a little pair of, if I turn these on and go around here. Oh, look at that. There's us on the TV. <laughs> I got these little guys <laughs> over here. Which, um, and you can't see that, I don't think, mate, because you're seeing a different um, different camera to me. Just line that back up. Yeah, it's about there. Uh, I read an interview with Bob Cle Bob Clearmountain, and he said um, he does a lot of his mixing on the little Altec speakers that were oh, branded oh, as yeah. Apple that came with the G3 series. And I was in a computer store, and I, I saw some up in the corner, and they had speakers for sale. I'm like, dude, can I buy those off you? And he went and asked the boss. I got it for 10 bucks. I checked my top end on those because they're exaggerated. So, um, yeah, yeah, know your limitations. If I could tell anyone, man, if you've played rock and roll for any amount of time, you've got damage, know your damage and compensate for it. Don't pretend. Yeah. yeah. I got friends yeah, that, yeah. that are friends with Phil Rudd from ACDC and apparently he's got a studio uh, in, in New Zealand and they go, oh man, he's, he's deaf. He's fucking deaf. Everything that comes out of there is so bright. Is everything only on one side? <laughs> can imagine you'd put the cans on it. It's like, why is it only coming out of the one speaker, Phil? <laughs> I can barely hear it over here. Yeah. 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 Oh God. Yeah. Jeff you have to. Yeah. And again, it's like you, you know what you teach yourself, right? You, you can develop bad habits also, but, uh, you know, you don't want to change, uh, your monitors like too much or no. late in the game. Pick one, your pick one, learn it. It's the same with, Digital audio workstations, doors. I feel funny saying that to Americans because of my accent. Because they, they, they'd say, da, and I say, door. And they're yeah. like, what are you talking about? Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, so the accent <laughs> thing is a bit funny. Hey, I, I, I was going to say, um, is it? <laughs> we're both really excited here and the lag's making that awkward. Um, what words um, did you find when you moved to, to the States were completely different. You know, there's footpath. We say footpath and they, they say sidewalk oh, and yeah, stuff. Sorry. So I, I bring this up because I was talking to Thomas Blue. I don't know if you know Thomas. Um, he's a European guitar player. Has He makes Blue Guitar is the brand. Jennifer Batten and stuff are, are using his floor amps. 
And as I said, we have a, I have a good rave with people an hour before and after the three hours that we broadcast. And he's been to Australia many times. And he said, there's this one word you guys say that nobody else says. Quad box. <laughs> it's an Australian thing, so, apparently. Yeah, Did, yeah, it really is. What other terms have you found when you moved over there that people would pick you up on? Uh, oh, uh, other, um, shit. Uh, that's a really good question. Do, you know, it's. Uh, do they say punter? Yeah. Uh, they no, punter? no, they. They don't, do they? They don't. No. Um, although I've heard shit that, you know, uh, David Draymond actually has said the word punter to me before. I said it to Nuno Betancourt many years ago. I was lucky enough to, to hang with Nuno on my 21st birthday. He was out here on, on his honeymoon with Suze, and I've known the baby animals a long time. Um, and I said the word punter to him along the way and he kind of looked at me weird Interesting. And, I said, and i said oh you guys don't say that no no i said what do you guys call him he goes fans <laughs> and I went, oh, of yeah, yeah totally yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the audience <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah uh what else is there uh oh, nothing rings to oh geez what if... i can't think of anything I, I, maybe because I'm, I'm so kind of enveloped in in the the culture here that it's it's just completely escaping me. I, don't, I remember there was probably a you know a plethora of words that I'm sure you know we were crazy when when Justin Latz and I first moved here. We were rambunctious, very rambunctious, and uh, we were I, I think notably called the crazy Australians because we were, you know, we're just drinking, having fun. And like, we're in the U S we're we just signed a record deal. You know, we're acting like idiots. Um, I don't know. I think, I don't think people really, uh, understood anything that we were about at the time, <laughs> but I'm sure a lot of people couldn't really understand us. Do you, uh, you, you watch guitar YouTube videos at all, man? Do you, do you know some of the YouTubers? Do you know who Phil McKnight is? As in, like, no. know, know your gear or five things you didn't know about the Fender Stratocaster, shaved head. No. Um, Phil's huge. Um, I'm actually going to get him in probably not next week, the week after as a guest. But um, I remember sitting in the back of a, a, a car. I'd just gone with Phil to film a segment. He has this thing, Sharpen Your Axe, where mm -hmm. uh, he'll take a guitar and then do it up, basically, an off-the-shelf guitar. And we had Tom Quayle. Do you know Tom Quayle, the guitar player on, on YouTube? Man, he's absolute shredding, legato, fusion-style player. Mind-blowing. We got him to play uh, an off-the-shelf Ibanez, a cheaper one, in Indo, and remember what it feels like. And then we took it to this other luthier down the road um, to play with it, replace things, and give it back to Tom and see if he could feel the difference. As we're driving back, uh, Phil says to me, uh, hey, man, um, he says, uh, you talk like that character in that movie I just saw the other day. And I th can't think what it was. And, but it was, it was a Kiwi. It was, it was like a, a character in uh -oh. like a big, oh, shit. Is it the Avengers or something where there's a big somebody, he's got the, the Kiwi bro accent. And he's going, you talk like that character. And I'm like, to me, man, that's a completely different accent. That, you know, that it's hey, bro, yeah. how you doing, you know? And I started doing. It. He goes, yeah, that's exactly it. That's how you talk. I'm like, well, my dad's a Kiwi, so maybe I I might have a, a hint of that or something. A little bit of inflection, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've gotten some flack uh, 
you know, when I would uh, I'd usually hang out with bar because I'd spent a lot of time in the studio. So the first thing I would want to go to is a bar to hang out just by myself, yep. have my own time, you know, enjoy a nice cold beer or twenty. Yep. Um, and if I ever heard um, anything that would be remotely close to an Australian accent, it would pique my interest, and I'd be like, "Oh, where are you from?" And I would often, and I feel like such an asshole for saying this, uh, I would often mishear or just assume that they were Australian because I'm Australian. And sometimes I would get, no, New Zealand. I'm like, oh, sorry. Like, okay, get off your high horse. You didn't have any sort of choice whatsoever uh, to be born in whatever country that you were born in. So, I mean, just slow down. (laughs) I'm saying hello is basically, hey, what's up? It's like calling a Canadian uh, an American, isn't it? It's like, can't you hear my accent? (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah just be pleased that someone addressed you how about that <laughs> yeah cool space it's been fucking awesome chatting to you man and i no like doubt that once we go off air and i take another pee break that we'll probably keep raving for a little bit more but totally. i want to thank you man you, you were the first guy that actually wanted to have on one of these chit chats just because i know you and you'd be a bit more lenient if i Turned on the camera and went, ah, rubbing the headlights, which I do. I'm the first to admit the first two minutes of my chit-chats, I'm fucking terrible. I talk too fast. I stutter and I stammer, but I tell my guests that and uh, you just got to do it. And this is, we're up to like 20 episodes or something and it's getting a bit more comfortable. So, yeah. Dude, I think, well, like I said to you yesterday before, like we did a little test run to make sure everything was working. And like I said yesterday to you, man, like, don't don't ever stop doing this again it's like whatever you're doing is right and as you'll see as the years pass and the months pass the weeks pass and and the guests change you will find you'll you know it's just like picking up the guitar for the first time or jumping on stage for the first time it's nervous at first but with with that time comes experience and yeah it all it like that's what's so amazing whether it be music or just life in general this is just one massive learning experience and we get to do it and we should be stoked about that totally i got a split screen going man i'm gonna see if we can do a high five a virtual high five if i'm about it's all backwards i'll go a bit higher ready two three go no you're on the wrong side oh this side that's right that's it Bam! Right. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Virtual high fives. Woo! Nice. <laughs> Space, thank you so much for your time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Space. Thanks for having me, brother. No worries, man. Peace out, folks.